And welcome back. A Long Island woman who falsely accused two football players of rape faced her sentencing hearing today. Nikki Avino, who you see right there, she will serve one year, though, uh, even though she was sentenced to three years in prison because two of those years were suspended as part of a plea agreement that she reached with prosecutors. Just a few moments ago, uh, we got some reaction from her defense attorney. There you can see her in court, some video from earlier today. We got some reaction from her defense attorney about the sentence. Let's take a listen to that. Let me just say that this is obviously a, uh, a difficult day for Nikki and her family. This is a serious um, punishment that she is going to face, and I think her willingness to accept this, um, this, this plea deal reflects her accountability for what happened. Um, at this point, we're going to focus on her uh, serving her time and working on her getting back to her family and continuing to be a uh, a good contributing member of society that she had been um, for, for her entire life up to this point. So uh, that's all I have to say at this point. Um, if you have any questions, I may have an answer for what, you, but I'd like to. What made her decide to take the plea deal last minute? Uh, can't comment on that. Um, Forgive me for the question, but it looked like she was rolling her eyes during the victim impact statement. She was not. I was sitting there looking at it. She wasn't. Why didn't she address the court at all? Nothing else to say. All right, Aaron Keller, uh, you really put the uh, the word to the defense attorney there, claiming that you saw Nikki Avino, the defendant in the case, roll her eyes when she was being sentenced. The defense attorney wasn't having it. Do we have video? Is this the video that we're looking at, Aaron, of her rolling her eyes? Um, it, it's a it's a clip that appears to be at least some of it. And uh, apologize to you folks listening. The wind has suddenly picked up here in Bridge, Bridgeport, Connecticut, where this uh, hearing happened uh, not too long ago. But look, I mean, I was standing right next to the pool camera, and it looked to me at a minimum like the body language we were getting here was somewhat flippant. That's to say, a minimum. Some other people thought they saw her roll her eyes several times during the victim impact statements, I wasn't the only one that noticed it. It was at least one other reporter, and it was a number of other people who were standing present, including attorneys who weren't even involved in this case, because this sentencing hearing was sort of in the midst of some other hearings that were happening in court. So there were a lot of attorneys around, and, and the bottom line is, look, the, the talk after this hearing was, did anybody see, did people see what the defendant was doing when an attorney for her victims was reading one impact statement and when one of the victims got up in front of the microphone and in front of the cameras and gave his own victim impact statement. Well, I hope we can turn around that video. I want to see it for, with my own eyes, but it seems to me based on where the attorney was standing and where Nikki was standing that he would have had no way of even seeing if she had rolled her eyes. Uh, so I don't know how he was able to answer your question. But anyway, let's move on from that. A promising fo college football player's life dreams shattered as he was falsely accused of rape. His accuser, 19-year-old Nikki Uvino, told police that she went to a party where two football players forced her to have sex in a bathroom. She later admitted that she had sex willingly and was afraid that if she admitted that, another student wouldn't want to date her. 
Malik St. Hilaire speaks out here exclusively tonight for the first time about the case. But first, Trace Gallagher live in our West Coast newsroom with the backstory here. Hi, Trace. Hi, Martha. At the time, Nikki Uvino was attending Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. She claimed the incident happened at an off-campus party that two Sacred Heart football players pulled her into a bathroom, took turns holding her down, and sexually assaulted her. Uvino claimed she repeatedly told the men she didn't want to be there, that she had friends waiting for her outside, and to please let her go. Both men admitted having sex with her, but said it was consensual. The players were not arrested, but one lost his scholarship, and both said they were pressured to leave school while they awaited disciplinary action. Then Nikki Uvino drastically changed her story, admitting in a sworn statement that she made the whole thing up because, quote, it was the first thing that came to mind and she didn't want to lose another male student as a friend and potential boyfriend. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Then Nikki Uvino drastically changed her story, admitting in a sworn statement that she made the whole thing up because, quote, it was the first thing that came to mind and she didn't want to lose another male student as a friend and potential boyfriend. The document goes on to say Uvino hoped that when the other student heard the allegation, it would, quote, make him angry and sympathetic to her. Yovina was sentenced to a year in jail for falsely reporting an incident and interfering with police. Malik St. Hilaire, one of the players wrongly accused, says he spent 18 months trying to keep his name out of the news, but finally he felt compelled to appear at the sentencing to talk about the significance of Yovino's actions. Watch. My life has been altered and shaped in ways that nobody here could have imagined. I just hope that, you know, she knows what she's done and the fact that my life will never be the same. Like, I have anxiety, I have, like, PTSD from this. Yovino made more headlines during her sentencing by appearing to roll her eyes and smirk several times. Her attorney claimed she was simply moving her eyes in innocuous ways, adding that she was forced to stand in handcuffs for 30 minutes and couldn't get her hair out of her eyes. He called reports of her bad behavior a manufactured storyline. Martha. Trace, thank you. Joining me now exclusively, Malik St. Hilaire and his attorney, Frank Riccio. Welcome uh, to both of you. Good to have you here. Thank you. So Good you're a football here. player. You're at Sacred Heart. Um, in high school, you were a wide receiver, most valuable player, team captain, right? Serious about what you were doing. So you go to college, you go to this off-campus party, and like that, um, your life has changed. But what was your reaction when you heard what she was accusing you of? Well, to be honest, um, I, it was crazy. I, the, that was the biggest type of accusation somebody can make. Whether, like, the only thing close to that is murder. And that was just to have a sister and a mother and just people that I care about and somebody to accuse me of that. It was, it was life-changing because, you know, people don't look at you the same way. People don't talk to you. People, you know, everybody, especially because of how everything um, played out, nobody, I didn't even have a chance to even clear myself. So automatically I'm looked at as something and someone. And so you you that felt I'm like you were, everyone automatically believed her? Um, no, not automatic. People, people that knew me, they knew better, um, you know, but just people, if you didn't know this story and you just heard of it, all you hear is somebody is accused of that. And because that was the case, it was just really hard to, to go through things, you know, to be an accusee of that.
What did her claim do to your life? Really, it, it really did a lot. I had to, at that moment, I had to leave school. We were um, suspended from school, weren't allowed to attend classes. And then when trying to get back into school it was very difficult because we no longer had the aid that we had, um, scholarships that we did had. Did you lose a scholarship? Um, I wasn't on football scholarship at the time because that year I decided that semester actually was my, I was trying to transition into communications, but I was on scholarship. I had received scholarships from Harlem Week and from things that I did with in the community of New York City. So um, from that, it was just crazy because I didn't even have opportunity to gain those things and to transition my life into yeah. what I wanted to transition it to. Tell me about the moment that you learned that she had recanted her story, that she was admitting that it, it didn't happen that way. Um, well, at that, at that moment, it was, uh, it was a breath of fresh air a little, you know, because it was like, finally, she's telling the truth. Like, finally, she's coming out and saying what really happened because, you know, but still at that moment, you know, not, still was, I was still out of school. I was still having difficulty. So even though she may have come out and t tell the truth, the damage had already been done. Were you angry? Um, I was less furious. I was more, I was more confused and just trying to figure things out. And at that moment, I just had a lot of pain in me. And what I did is I really just, you know, turned my pain into passion. Do you think that young men in these situations on college campuses get a fair hearing? Do, do people listen to their side of the story? I mean, I think that was one of the issues was the fact that when this happened, we didn't even give a statement. Um, we had no opportunity to even give a statement when it happened. So we were so suspended. Did kicked you out without asking you to come explain what happened? Did not, was not asked a question about what happened before being suspended from school. So. That was, yes, extremely unbelievable. I think one of the, the issues, too, is the Title IX process in general. Yeah. Uh, you had a, a guest on your show on Wednesday that spoke of this very issue. These Obama-era policies uh, created a very low standard of proof. I'll call it no standard of proof. Uh, and I know Betsy DeVos is working on a new set of proposals that will add due process, add the ability to raise a standard of proof and raise the ability to cross-examine and, and present evidence, review evidence. That does not exist in the Title IX uh, concept right now. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable that no one asked you or the others your side of the story. You were told to pack up your stuff and leave? Yes, immediately. Um, pretty much packed up my stuff the, that upcoming week, because it was on a weekend, that upcoming week packed up my stuff and had to figure out what to do from there. What's your next dream? How are you trying to put your life back together? Well, really, from this, what I've been doing is just putting my pain into passion. And my passion has been music recently. I, I've been putting out a lot of music. I've performed in New York City. I've really been trying to turn my life around and put this into, you know, use this situation to better myself. So I'm putting this situation into my music. I put, Does it make you think twice about your interactions with women? Oh, no doubt. Um, it gives me, definitely, I have, like, like I said, just some anxiety. And there's a lot of different things that go on now when I'm around women or when I'm just around any situation just in any environment because I did nothing wrong and at, and then all of a sudden I was getting recourses as if I did something wrong so Malik you're, you're a good young man and it's good to meet you thank, thank you very you. much I wish you, you too, I wish you all the best and thank, thank you. you Frank thank for you. coming in tonight good thank to you. see you both context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date thursday 
January 27th, 2022. So I have been told this is our seventh and final study session on Alice Siebold's Lucky. Not a very long book. So we will wrap up, get our hear the final installment and make our final thoughts about what we've heard over the last month and a half or so. Uh, the audio segment that we heard at the beginning, Nikki Yavino, college student, some parallels here. She said she has consensual sexual intercourse with two males, Rick James, two black males. And then she's trying to hook up with some other dude, probably a white man. And oh man, he's going to think less of me. Mud shark, what they call it. I know. She said, first thing that comes, I know. The one that always worked. I'll just say they raped me. That'll get him angry. Maybe get a posse. That's where we ended at last week. Remember? Pat said they were mad riding around with a crowbar. Said Pat was so angry he couldn't see. After the accusation that Lila, the roommate, had been raped. We will hear because we didn't even get to hear all of the tackiness that is associated with the rape of Lila. So we'll get to hear the rest of that with the conclusion this week. We heard in the report, Nikki Yavino, the two males that she accused, Amir Bradley and Malik St. Hilaire. Uh, when they go to give their victim statement, she's rolling her eyes in court and all the rest of it. They at Fox News asked him, do you think you get a fair trial in all this? Do you think people believed you? I certainly don't think anyone believed Anthony Broadwater. Even now, I suspect some people do not believe Mr. Anthony Broadwater. Incidentally, two quick things I want to say or three, and then we'll get to the, uh, the audio segment. So three quick things. Number one, the audio that's playing in the background. Philip Glass was mentioned last week in the text. He is a white composer. They were bragging, giving all of their uh, like white culture white refined culture and name dropping like Woody Allen. Philip Glass was one of those white people named. I submit Philip Glass, the piece that he is most well known for, the score for Candyman. I could be wrong. He's got a long career. could be something else, but I think it's the score for Candyman. What's Candyman about? Anthony Broadwater, the Negro male rapist. Now, technically, the character Candyman, black male played by Tony Todd in the movie, did not rape a white woman, but might as well. They get mad. They have a castration. Then he comes back and haunts this white woman and kills all these white people for vengeance. Anthony Broadwater, basically. Uh, But she mentions Philip Glass last week. Even after I thought about it, I said, well, we were about to have a movie about the raping black male, just like Candyman. And the theme of that movie is white woman college student going to study the negras and that's where she gets raped attacked by this black male wow there are a lot more parallels than I even thought when I mentioned Candyman uh, last week that's one two speaking of movies Alice Siebold had that scene last week where they go to see uh, Sylvester Stallone Rambo Vietnam uh, flick they made so many of them but she goes to see this film in the early 80s and they're laughing and giggling and cutting a fool in the theater and then some white Vietnam veteran gets angry with them afterwards pause because she gets all dramatic and I can't believe this and men are always smashing us we have had a book club for 10 years do you know 
the number of black people who have written about their experience going to the movie theater and not yelling, not being unruly and loud and disrupting other people's viewing experience, paying their ticket and being ushered into the trashy balcony of the theater if they are allowed to visit at all. Do you know how many times that's come up? The Little Rock Nine talked about that. Richard Williams talked about that. Uh, the Warmth of Other Sons. Isabel Wilkinson talked about I mean, over and over and over the audacity. We couldn't go and misbehave in the theater without being called out. Mm, and sexism, patriarchy. Mm. Last thing I'll get in before we get to the final audio segment, we're going to hear two different book review segments now this is uh, a pair of white women although it's only one white woman speaking uh this is for a book club that's been around for about as long as the cows bookish is what it's called on youtube they did a book review of lucky in 2011 so this is a decade before all the information comes out you'll hear what they had to say about it in 2011 first we'll hear our last audio installment and then they did an updated book review after all this information came out about Mr. Broadwater being exonerated and all the rest. So we're here, both of those, they'll kind of bookend our experience of Lucky as we wrap it up this week. So that's where we will go to take lots of great notes. So excited. Let's share what we have learned from the white woman, Alice Siebold's Lucky. But first, bookish their 2011 review of said book. Hey guys, I would just like to say that it is currently snowing outside and I love it because it means that getting closer to the end of the semester and Christmas and all the holiday excitement, I needed to share that with somebody. <laughs> Back to regularly scheduled booktubing stuff. Uh, I have a review ready for you on Lucky by Alice Siebel. Before I get into what this book is about, I just want to sort of put out a bit of a warning. If somebody is kind of doesn't really like reading about really sensitive stuff, a lot of violence, then they probably just say bye and then just kind of click out of this one just because it deals with some pretty heavy stuff and I'm obviously going to be talking about it a little bit. Alice Siebel, for those of you who or like, I, I think I know that name. She wrote The Lovely Bones, and if you know what The Lovely Bones is about, you probably have an idea about what this book focuses on. Uh, the Lovely Bones is about the rape and murder of a young teenage girl named Susie Salmon, and it's been on like the top of the bestseller list. It's won a bunch of awards. They made it into a movie, but um, I read the book and I absolutely loved it. It was really well written and it was definitely a tough subject, but it made the book that much more rewarding in the end. So when I um, found Alice Siebold's two other books that she wrote. I picked up Lucky and The Almost Moon, so now I've read Lucky, and uh, it's actually her memoir, and in the memoir, the first chapter opens up with her getting raped. So you kind of know now where the story of the Lovely Bones came from in terms of it was an expression of her experience and having to deal with the rape and how her family had to deal with the rape well, that was sort of mirrored in the lovely bones but this is her own story it's obviously very different just because she's a different age different place and so the first chapter of this book opens up with her coming home from a party she's a college freshman she's 18 and she gets raped by this guy she's never met him before he just 
sort of she can hear him coming up behind her and then he sort of overtakes her and it goes into some very gritty detail she doesn't leave anything to the imagination so I was reading this book in public this first chapter and I was sort of riveted it's one of those things where it's so horrible you can't look away I just kept reading and wasn't really aware of anything else that was going on around me just because it was so powerful. I don't want to say that it was good because obviously somebody getting raped is not good, but it was just written really, really well. From that moment on, the entire book sort of flows out from that point. She sort of stumbles home. She gets really beaten up too. So not only is she raped, but she looks physically, she's bleeding, she's got cuts and scratches all over her. So when she ends up back in her dorm, people are sort of staring at her, wondering what the heck's going on. And eventually she does go to the hospital and she goes to the police station. The one thing that I really liked about Alice is that she wanted to get her rapist. She wanted to bring him down. And there was a lot of hate. She wanted him to die basically. And that is sort of, talked about a lot in the book. So that's sort of the first part of her dealing with it and having to tell her parents and just how everybody looks at her differently because of what happened to her. She's that girl who got raped. It's just, you you know, you know that person on campus. It's that girl. She is that girl. And that's the very end of her first year at university. And she actually decides to go back in the fall for her second year just because she doesn't want you know, her life taken away from her by the fact of what happened to her and she actually ends up running into her rapist on the street in October of that year. She goes back to the police and a trial ensues from there. The first part of this book is about the after, the very aftermath of what happened to her, dealing with that, how her family deals with it, how her friends deal with it, and the second half of the book is more the trial and can they bring this guy down because of course it's very difficult to um, indict somebody for rape. There's a lot of gritty detail here. It's a very sad book but also kind of uplifting at the same time. Towards the end of the book she starts talking about more, you know, what happened to her 10 years after the rape. It's, it's such a good book. Like that's that's how I have to I have to put it like that. It's such a good book. It's a really tough subject, but it's written so well. I really like how Alice Siebold writes. I mean, I told you I love the Lovely Bones, so I you know I figured I was gonna like Lucky, and because of that, I'm gonna give the book a five out of five stars, and I'm gonna recommend it to anybody who read and liked the Lovely Bones. It's looking for a really good memoir, somebody who enjoys a story that is gritty but is very satisfying in the end overall a really fantastic book. If you have read uh, The Lovely Bones or Lucky, feel free to leave comments below about what you thought about them. All the links are in the doobly-doo as usual, so thank you guys for watching and I'll see you later. The next morning, Mark knocked and then brought us tea. Mr. Reinhardt had called with his flight number. I promised Lila I would get all of her stuff out of the apartment, ASAP. She had a list of things she wanted her father and me to pack for the flight home. I called Steve Sherman. I needed a place to store my stuff. Lila had a friend who would take hers. Moving and packing. Her stuff was something I could take control of. I could serve her that way. I stood at the same gate where Detective John Murphy had waited and watched for me. I had already met Lila's father once, 
on a visit to her house that summer. He was a huge, hulking man. As he approached me, I could see him begin to cry. His eyes were already red and swollen. He came up, put down his bags, and I held him as he wept. But I felt like an alien in his presence. I knew the landscape, or so everyone imagined. I had been raped and through a trial and been in the papers. Everyone else was just an amateur. Pat, the Reinharts, their lives had not prepared them for this. Mr. Reinhardt was not kind to me. Eventually he said things to my mother and me about how they would handle their own. He told my mother that his daughter was nothing like me and that they didn't need my advice or her counsel. Lila, he said, needed to be left alone. But at first, on that day, he cried and I held him. I knew, more than he ever could, what his daughter had gone through and how impossible it was for him to do anything to fix it. In that moment, before the blame and separation set in, he was broken. My mistake was in not seeing how lost I had become. I behaved as I thought I should, like a pro. At Mark's, Lila stood when she saw her father. They hugged, and I shut the door to the bedroom. I went to stand as far away as I could to give them their privacy. In the tunnel that was Mark's attic kitchen, I smoked one of Mark's cigarettes. I counted, packing all of our possessions in my head and distributing them to the homes of various friends. I thought a million different thoughts in every moment. When a spoon slipped in the sink, I jumped. That night, Mr. Reinhardt took us out for dinner at the Red Lobster. Mark, myself, Pat, and Lila. It was all-you-can-eat shrimp night, and he kept urging us on. Pat did his best, and so did Mark, who preferred Szechuan noodles and snow peas. Neither Pat nor Mark were macho in the traditional sense. Conversation stalled repeatedly. Mr. Reinhardt's eyes were swollen and bloodshot. I don't remember what I said. I was uncomfortable. I could feel how much Lila wanted to leave. I didn't want to give her over to her parents. I thought of Mary Alice French braiding my hair the morning of my own rape. I had sensed it almost from the start at the airport. There were going to be reasons put forth by people, by her parents perhaps, that would prevent me from helping. I was to be banished. I had the disease. It was catching. I knew this, but I kept clinging. Clinging so hard, wanting to be with Lila in this shared thing so desperately that my presence was bound to suffocate her. We drove them to the airport. I don't remember saying goodbye to her. I was already thinking of the move out, of saving what was left to me. I moved all our possessions, Lila's and mine, out of our apartment within 24 hours. I did it alone. Mark had classes. I called Robert Daly, a student who had a truck, and arranged for him to pick the stuff up after I had boxed it. I gave him my furniture. Whatever he wanted, he could take, I said. Pat was dragging his heels. No one seemed to understand my urgency. In the midst of packing that day, I was in the kitchen, and I knocked the table with my hip. A small, handmade bunny mug that my mother had given me after the trial fell on the floor and broke. I looked at it and cried, but then stopped. There was no time for that. I would not allow myself to be attached to things. It was too dangerous. I had cleared my bedroom out first, in the early morning, and now, as Robert was due to arrive before dark, 
I turned the doorknob for one last scan of my room. I had been thorough, but on the floor near the dresser, I found a photo of myself and Steve Sherman that had been taken on the porch of the house over the summer. We were happy in the photo. I looked normal. Then in the closet, I found a valentine he had given me earlier that year. The photo, the valentine, were ruined now, remains of a crime scene. I had tried to be like everyone else. During my junior year, I had given it a go, but that wasn't the way it was going to be. I could see that now. It seemed I had been born to be haunted by rape, and I began to live that way. I took the photo and valentine and shut the door of my bedroom for the final time. I drifted into the kitchen, holding them. I heard a noise in the other room. It echoed now that I had emptied the room out. I jumped. Hello, came a voice. Pat? I walked into the other room. He had brought a green trash bag to get some of his clothes. Why are you crying, he said. I hadn't realized I had been, but as soon as he asked, I became aware of the dampness on my cheeks. Aren't I allowed to cry? I asked. Well, yeah, it's just that... It's just that what? I guess I expected you to be okay with it. I yelled horrible things at him. We had never been best friends, and now we would cease even to be acquaintances. Robert Daly showed up. He was a rock. That is how I remember him. We shared a taste for honest criticism in our fiction workshop and a respect for Tobias Wolfe and Raymond Carver. Robert and I weren't close either, but he helped me. I cried in front of him, and he didn't like it when I apologized. He took my rocker and daybed and some other items. For a few years, until it became obvious I wouldn't come back for them, he dropped me cards to say my furniture was doing fine and wishing I were there. I changed, but I didn't know it. I went home for Thanksgiving. Steve Sherman came over from New Jersey to spend time with me. He had been Lila's friend first before becoming my boyfriend, and the idea that both of us had been raped overwhelmed him. He told me that when he found out about Lila, he had been in the shower. His roommate had come in to tell him. He'd looked down at his penis and suddenly felt a self-hatred he couldn't describe, knowing that so much violence had come to his friends that way. He wanted to help. He stored the rest of my things, and I slept in his spare bedroom. When Lila came back two weeks after her rape for the GREs, she stayed in his house. He kept me company and volunteered as my security guard, walking me home from work or class. The division that came was inevitable, I guess. People felt compelled to take sides. It began the night of the rape when the police had come up to me so openly. Lila's friends started avoiding me, looking away or to the side. During her overnight for the GREs, the police came to Steve's house to do a photo lineup. I was in the bedroom with Lila and two policemen. They spread the small, wallet-sized photos out on the desk. I looked over Lila's shoulder. I bet you recognize one of these, a uniformed policeman said to me. They had put a photo of Madison and his lineup buddy, Leon Baxter, in the pack. I was so mad I couldn't speak. Is the one who raped her in here? Lila asked. She was sitting at a desk in front of me. I couldn't see her face. I left the room. I was sick. Steve reached his arms out and grabbed hold of me. What is it? They put a photo of Madison in there, I said. 
But he's still in jail, isn't he? Yes, I think so, yes. I hadn't even thought to ask. Attica, a uniform said in answer. To have to pick out her rapist and see him there, the focus is all wrong, I said to Steve. It's not fair. The door opened. Lila came out into the living room, behind the officer who held the mugshots in an envelope. We're done here, a policeman said. Did you see him? I asked Lila. She saw something, the policeman said. He wasn't happy. I'm stopping it now. I'm not going to pursue it, Lila said. What? It was a pleasure getting to meet you, Alice, the officer said. He shook my hand. His partner did too. They left, and I looked at Lila. My question must have been obvious. It's too much, Lila said. I want my life back. I watched what it did to you. But I won, I said, incredulous. I want it to be over, she said. This way it is. You can't just will it away, I said. But I felt her trying. She took her GREs and returned home until after Christmas. Our plan was to live together in graduate student housing. Her family was going to loan her a car because it was the only way to get back and forth from campus, that or the bus, which I would take. I'll never know what the police said to Lila in that room or whether or not she saw her rapist among those men. At the time, I couldn't understand her decision not to pursue it, although I thought I did. The police had a theory that Lila might have been raped out of revenge. They based this on several things. Madison, though in Attica, had friends. He had been given a maximum sentence and would be inside a bare minimum of eight years. The rapist knew my name, raped her on my bed, asked after me while he did. He knew my schedule and that I was a waitress at Cosmos. All this could have been evidence of a connection to Madison, or it could just have been the thorough research of a criminal intent on finding his victim alone. I still choose to believe that part of the horror of the crime was in its cruel coincidence. Conspiracy seemed a stretch to me. Lila didn't want to know. She wanted out of it. The police interviewed my friends. They went to Cosmos and interviewed the owner and the man who flipped the pizzas inside the front window. But there were other rapes being done with a similar M.O. to Lila's. If Lila wouldn't prosecute, any link to me was now inconsequential. They had no witness and, with no witness, no case. The police dropped their investigation. Lila went home until January. She gave me a copy of her schedule. I told her teachers why she wouldn't be in attendance at finals. I called her friends. My life became streamlined and the fallout began. I went home for Christmas. My sister was depressed. She had graduated and won a Fulbright, but was now living at home and working in a garden shop. Her Arabic major was not translating into the job she had hoped for. I went to her room to cheer her up. At some point she said, Alice, you just don't understand. Everything comes so easily for you. I sputtered in my disbelief. A wall went up. I cut her out. I had nightmares now, even more vivid than before. My sporadic journal of those years is full of them. The recurring image is one I'd seen in a documentary of the Holocaust. There are 50 or 60 chalk-white and emaciated dead bodies. Their clothes have been stripped from them. 
The clip shows a bulldozer rolling them into a deep, open grave, the bodies plunging as a tangled hole. Faces, mouths, skulls with eyes set deep, the minds inside gone to unimaginable lengths in order to have survived. Then this, darkness, death, filth, and the idea that one person could be struggling, trying to stay alive in there. I woke up in cold sweats. Sometimes I screamed. I would turn over and lie facing the wall. Enter the next step. Awake now, I consciously played out the intricate plot of my almost death. The rapist was inside the house. He was climbing up the stairs. He knew, on instinct, which steps would betray him by a noise. He was loping down the hall. A breeze came through the front window. No one would think to question it if they were awake in the other rooms. A light scent of another person, someone else in the house, would waft into them. But like one small noise, it would warn no one but me that something was going to happen. I would feel then my door opening, a sense of another presence in the room, the air changed to allow for a human weight. Far away, near my wall, something was breathing my air, stealing my oxygen. My breath would grow shallow, and I would make a promise to myself. I would do anything the man wanted. He could rape me and cut me and take off my fingers. He could blind me or maim me. Anything. All I wanted to do was live. Resolved, I would gather my strength. Why was he waiting like this? I would turn slowly around in the dark. Where the man stood so vividly in my imagination, there was no one. There was the door to my closet. That was all. Then I would turn on the light and check the house, going up to each door and trying the knob, sure it would give, and there he would be, standing on the other side and laughing at me. Once or twice the noise I made woke my mother. Alice, she would call out. Yes, Mom, I said. It's just me. Go back to sleep. I will, I said. I'm just getting something to eat. Upstairs in my bedroom, I would try to read, not look at the closet, or quickly over to the door. I never questioned what was happening to me. It all seemed normal. Threat was everywhere. No place or person was safe. My life was different from other people's. It was natural that I behaved differently. After Christmas, Lila and I tried to make a go of it in Syracuse. I wanted to help her, but I also needed her. I believed in talking. To be with her after dark, I quit Cosmos. This was easy. They didn't want me back. When I had gone to ask about getting day shifts, the owner was distant and standoffish. The man who flipped the pizzas came up after the owner had left. Don't you get it, he said. The police have been in here asking questions. We don't want you here. I left in tears and walked blindly into someone. Watch where you're going, the man said to me. It was snowing. I quit the review. The bus back to the place Lila and I were living broke down a lot. Tess was on leave. I stopped going to poetry readings. One night, I was a little later than usual getting home. It had grown dark, and Steve met me at the doorstep. Where were you, he asked. His tone was angry, accusatory. We needed food, I said. Lila called me because she was scared. She wanted someone to sit with her. Thanks for coming over, I said. I was holding a bag of groceries, and it was cold. 
You should have been here. I walked inside and hid my tears. When Lila said it wasn't working out, that she didn't like the apartment and she was going to go home for a few weeks and then move in with Mona, a friend she'd recently made, I entered a sort of shock. I thought we'd be in this together, clones. It's just not working, Alice, she said. I can't talk about it the way you want me to, and I feel isolated here. Steve and Mark were the only two people who had regularly visited the house. Both of them, though scrupulously avoiding each other, were more than willing to sit guard. But they were my friends, my boyfriends to be exact, and Lila knew it. They were there primarily for me and to help me out by helping her. She needed to separate. This is clear to me now. Then I felt betrayed. We went through our record albums and other things that had been common property over our two years together. I cried, and if she wanted something, I gave it to her. I gave her things she didn't ask for. I left possessions behind me to mark my place. Could I ever get back to where I had been? Where was that? A virgin? A freshman in college? Eighteen? I sometimes think nothing hurt me more than Lila's decision to stop speaking to me. It was a total blackout. She did not return my phone calls when I was finally able to get her new number out of one of her friends. She passed by me on the street and did not speak. I called her name, no response. I blocked her path. She moved around me. If she was with a friend, they indeed looked at me, burning with a hatred I couldn't understand but nonetheless took in. I moved in with Mark. In four months, I would graduate. I stayed inside his apartment for everything but my classes. He drove me everywhere, a willing chauffeur, but mostly he stayed away from me. He was at the architecture studio late into the night. Sometimes he slept there. When he was home, I asked him to investigate noises, check the locks, to please just hold me. The week before graduation, I saw Lila again. I was with Steve Sherman. We were in the student mall on Marshall Street. She saw me, I saw her, but she walked right by me. I can't believe it, I said to Steve. We're graduating in a week and she still won't talk to me. Do you want to speak to her? Yes, but I'm afraid. I don't know what to say. We decided that Steve would stay where he was standing and I would circle around again in the opposite direction. I ran into her. Lila, I said. She was not surprised. I wondered if you'd try to speak to me. Why won't you talk to me? We're different, Alice, she said. I'm sorry if I've hurt you, but I need to move on with my life. But we were clones. That was just something we said. I've never been so close to anyone. You have Mark and Steve. Isn't that enough? We somehow got from that to wishing each other well at graduation. I told her Steve and I were going over to a nearby restaurant to have mimosas. She could come and join us if she wanted. Maybe you'll see me there, she said, then left. I rushed into the bookshop we'd been standing in front of and bought her a book of Tess's poems, Instructions to the Double. Inside, I wrote something that escapes me now. It was sappy and came straight from my heart. It said I would always be there for her. All she had to do was call. 
We did run into her at the bar. She was tipsy and had a boy with her whom I knew she had a crush on. She didn't want to sit with us, but stood by our table while she talked about sex. She told me she had been fitted for a diaphragm and that I was right, sex was great. I was audience now, not friend or intimate. She was too busy doing what I was doing, proving to the world that she was fine. I forgot to give her the book. They left. On our way home, Steve and I passed by another posher student hangout. I saw Lila sitting inside with her crush and a bunch of people I didn't know. I told Steve to wait, and I rushed inside with the book. The people at the table looked up. This is for you, I said, offering it to Lila. It's a book. Her friends laughed because the fact that it was a book was obvious. Thank you, Lila said. A waitress arrived to take drink orders. Lila's crush was watching me. I wrote something inside, I said. As her friends ordered drinks, she looked up at me. I thought she pitied me then. I'll read it later, but thank you. It looks like a good book. I never saw Lila again. On the day of graduation, I didn't attend. I couldn't imagine being there, trying to celebrate, seeing Lila and her friends. Mark had a project due. His school wasn't over yet. Steve was at graduation. Mary Alice was there too. I had told my parents I just wanted to get the hell out of Syracuse. They agreed. The faster the better, they said. I packed my remaining possessions in a silver rental car. It was a Chrysler New Yorker. They'd run out of subcompacts. I drove this boat back to Paoli, knowing the car itself would get a laugh out of my parents. Syracuse was over. Good riddance, I thought. I was going to the University of Houston in the fall. I was going to get an M.A. in poetry. I would spend the summer trying to reinvent myself. I had not seen Houston, never been south of Tennessee, but it was going to be different there. Rape would not follow me. Aftermath The night John got punched in the face was sometime in the fall of 1990. I was standing outside Dee Roberti's on First Avenue, waiting for John to come back with the cheap heroin we both snorted. We had a routine. We always said that if he took too long, I would come after him, shouting. It was a vague plan, but it kept from our minds the fact that something might happen that we couldn't control. That particular night, it was cold out, but those days cloud together. By that time, this was the point of it all. A year before, I had published a piece in the New York Times Magazine, a first-person account of my rape. In it, I beseeched people to talk about rape and to listen to articulate victims when they had a story to tell. I got a lot of mail. I celebrated with four dime bags and a Greek boyfriend who had once been my student. Then Oprah called, having read the article. I went on the show. I was the victim who fought back. There was another one who supposedly hadn't. Like Lila's, Michelle's resistance left no visible scars. But I doubt that Michelle flew back home to snort heroin. I never made it through graduate school in Houston. I didn't like the city, yes. But to be honest, I wasn't cut out for it. 
I slept with a decathlete and a woman. I bought pot off a guy behind the 7-Eleven, and I drank with another student who also dropped out, a tall man from Wyoming. And sometimes, while the decathlete held me or the man from Wyoming sat back and watched, I cried in hysterical trills that no one understood, least of all me. I thought it was Houston. I thought it was living in a hot climate where there were too many bugs and where the women wore too many ruffles and frills. I moved to New York and lived in a minority low-income housing project on 10th and C. My roommate, Zulma, was Puerto Rican and had raised her family in the apartment. Now she rented out her extra bedrooms. She liked to drink, too. I hostessed at a place in Midtown called La Fondue, and then I landed by meeting a drunk man in a bar called King Tut's Wawa Hut, a teaching job at Hunter College. I was an adjunct. I didn't have the requisite degrees and only a year of experience. I had been a teaching assistant in Houston, but the hiring committee was desperate and they recognized some names. Tess Gallagher, Raymond Carver. During the interview, I took 15 minutes to remember the word thesis, as in thesis sentence, the basis of all composition courses. When the chair called and Zilma handed me the phone, I'd never been more surprised by what I took then to be the fortuitousness of drinking. And my students there became the people who kept me alive. I could get lost in their lives. They were immigrants, ethnic minorities, city kids, returning women, full-time workers, former addicts, and single parents. Their stories filled my days, and their troubles in assimilating preoccupied my evening hours. I fit in with them in a way I had never fit in since before the rape. My own story paled when I compared it with theirs. Walking over the bodies of their countrymen to escape Cambodia, watching a brother be stood up against a wall and shot, raising a handicapped child alone on waitressing tips. And then there were the rapes. The girl who had been adopted for the purpose by her father, who was a priest. The girl who was raped in the apartment of another student and whom the police didn't believe. The girl who was a militant and tattooed dyke, but who broke down in my office when she told me about her gang rape. They told me their stories, I like to think, because I never questioned them, believed them utterly. They also thought I was a clean slate. I was obviously a middle-class white girl, a college teacher. Nothing had ever happened to me. I was too hungry for comfort to care that it was a one-way relationship. Like a bartender, I listened, and like a bartender, my position kept me at a safe remove. I was the ear, and the tragic stories of my students' lives medicated me. But I began to build up a resistance to them. By the time I wrote the article for the New York Times, I was ready to talk. Some students read it. They were shocked. Then came Oprah. Many more saw me there, holding forth, their English teacher, on her own rape. For the next few weeks, I ran into former students on the street. Wow, they would confide. I never thought you, I mean, you know. And I did know. Because I was white. Because I grew up in the suburbs. Because without a name attached to my story, it remains fiction, not fact. I loved heroin. Drinking had drawbacks, namely the volume needed to reach oblivion, and I didn't like the taste or the history. 
My mother had done that. Cocaine made me sick. I went into paralytic cramps once on the floor of a club called the Pyramid. Rastas and white girls danced around my curled-up body. I did it a few more times just to double-check. Ecstasy and mushrooms and acid trips? Who wanted to enhance a mood? My goal was to destroy it. I found myself in odd places, vacant lots, alleyways, and Athens. One night I came to from a nod in a tiny cafe in Greece. In front of me, on a dish, were small silvery fish. Two men were sopping up the oil from my plate with bread. We went back to a house on a hill. I heard the name of my Greek student mentioned, but he wasn't there. We smoked black tar and walked outside again. One of the men disappeared. The other wanted to sleep with me. I had been on American TV. At the same house, with a new population shooting up in the back, I put on someone's jacket because I was cold. There was a used needle in the pocket. It stabbed me. I was startled for a moment. Immediately I thought, AIDS. Then I did what I had become good at, played the odds. It was Greece. How bad could the risk be? After 30 days, I went home. I wrote a travel article for the New York Times, which appeared the following spring and time for people to plan their vacations. In the meantime, I flew back to Europe with another former student, John. He and a friend had scammed cheap tickets to Amsterdam through the friend's relative. We took the night train, high as kites, into Berlin. The wall was falling. It was after midnight by the time we reached the concrete, separating west from east. John and Kippy pitched in. They borrowed a pickaxe from a group of raucous and euphoric German men and took their turns. I stayed at a remove. This wasn't my country, and I was the only woman among men. A German man came over and offered me a cigarette, a bottle, said something to me, and grabbed my ass. Up along the wall, an East German border guard stared down. It was sometime after that in New York that John was hit. I remember seeing him round the corner. He had been gone longer than usual. I could see his glasses were missing and his nose was bloodied. He was upset. Did you get it? I asked. He nodded his head, didn't speak. We started walking. I got hit. This, like the needle in Athens, startled me. The question was, how bad did it have to get? I didn't want John to cop alone anymore and made a point of that. He tried not to, but sometimes, when we were desperate, he went. It got much worse. And then, in the spring of 1991, having just moved into an apartment on 7th Street, something clicked. Something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what. I lay in bed. I ate again, as I hadn't since college, and I wore my old flannel nightgowns. The boxes from the move remained unpacked. John was working grueling hours. He was uncomfortable around me now. When he came over, I sent him out to buy me brownies. I gained weight. I stopped caring about what I looked like or how fast I could walk at a clip to a club. I wanted to be better, but I didn't know how. A friend of mine I'd known since we were teenagers called to say I'd been quoted in a book my friend was a doctor now, and he worked in Boston. My New York Times piece had been quoted in Trauma and Recovery by Dr. Judith Lewis Herman. I laughed at this, 
I had wanted to write my own book, but I couldn't seem to manage it. Now, almost ten years after Lila's rape, my name had appeared as a footnote in another person's. I thought about buying it, but it was hardback, too pricey, and besides, I thought, I was done with all that. In the next six months, John and I stopped seeing each other. I joined a gym, and I got a therapist. John kept using. Part of me wanted him back so desperately, I did humiliating things. I begged. Part of me knew he was killing himself. First Avenue became a line I wouldn't cross. I felt the pull of my old neighborhood was too strong to resist, and so, when an opportunity came to spend two months in California at a rural artist colony, I took it. Dorland Mountain Arts Colony, which sits in the mountains of rural Redneck, California, is rustic by anyone's standards. The cabins are constructed of cinder blocks and plywood. There is no electricity. It is run on a shoestring budget. When I arrived, I was met by a man named Robert Willis, Bob. He was in his early 70s. He wore a white felt Stetson, Wranglers, and a denim shirt. He had silver hair and blue eyes and was chivalrous, but disinclined to talk. He lit my propane lamp, came up the next day to check on me, drove me to town for food. He'd been there for a long time and had seen a lot of people come and go. Odd as it was, we became friends. I told him about New York, and he talked about France. He lived there half the year in a similar caretaking capacity on a horse farm. Eventually, in his cabin after dark, by the light of the propane lamp, I told him about my rape and Lila's. He listened, saying only a few words. That must have hurt. You never get over certain things. He told me about serving as an infantryman in World War II and losing all his buddies. Years later, in the winter of 1993, in France, he had stared out a window, down at a tree. I don't know what it was, he said. I'd seen that tree from that window hundreds of times, but I started sobbing like a baby on my knees sobbing like you'd never seen. I felt ridiculous, but I couldn't stop myself. While I was doing it, I realized it was my buddies, that I had never cried for them. They were all buried in a graveyard in Italy near a tree like that, so far away. I just lost it. Who would have thought something that happened that long ago could have such power? Before I left, we had dinner one last time. He made what he called army vegetables, canned corn and canned tomatoes heated up on the stove, and bacon. We drank cheap wine, jug cheap. Dorland could be a spooky place in the daylight. At night, it was pitch black, only a few kerosene or propane lights dotting the hill. After dinner, as we sat on the porch of his cabin, we saw what Bob took to be a truck's lights on the dirt road that led up from the highway. Looks like we've got a visitor, Bob said. But then the truck's lights went off. We didn't hear it move. You wait here, he told me. I'm going to investigate. He went into the back and got his rifle from where he kept it hidden from the fragile liberal arts colonists and Dorland's board of directors. I'm going to circle back through the brush and come up on the road, he whispered. I'll shut off the light. I stood absolutely still on the porch. I strained to hear anything, gravel under a tire, a twig snapping, anything. 
In my mind, the men in the truck had hurt or killed Bob, and now they were advancing toward the cabin. But I had made a promise to Bob. I would not move. Moments later, I heard a rustle in the leaves on the far side of the cabin. I started. It's me, Bob's whisper came through the dark. Stay still. We watched the road. We never saw the lights on the truck go on. Eventually, Bob stepped through the chaparral with Shady, his faithful wolf Malamute, and we lit the propane light again. Both of us were amped up, went through the course of events a dozen times, shared our perception of it, talked about threat and how you could sense it, how we were lucky for war and rape because it gave us something no one else had, a sixth sense that turned on when we felt danger near us or those we loved. I went back to New York, but not the East Village. Too many memories. I moved with a boyfriend to 106th Street between Manhattan and Columbus. My parents had visited me twice in 10 years on my home turf. My mother had stood in an apartment of mine and said, you can't tell me you want to spend the rest of your life this way. She was talking real estate and apartment size, but they were words, as I came to repeat them, that took on a different meaning for me. That fall, I quit dabbling in heroin. It had as much to do with losing easy access to it as it did with anything. I drank again and smoked cigarettes, but so did everyone. Then I bought Dr. Herman's book. It was out in paper. I reasoned I should have a record of any place my name appeared in print. Herman chose to use one sentence from my article at the beginning of her chapter called Disconnection. The sentence, as it appeared, is this. When I was raped, I lost my virginity and almost lost my life. I also discarded certain assumptions I had held about how the world worked and about how safe I was. It appeared on page 51 of a 300-page book. I read the sentence and my name again in the bookstore before purchasing it. It was not obvious to me until I was riding home on the subway. In a book called Trauma and Recovery, I was cited in the first half. I decided not just to keep the book as a memento, but to actually read it. They do not have a normal baseline level of alert but relaxed attention. Instead, they have an elevated baseline of arousal. Their bodies are always on the alert for danger. They also have an extreme startle response to unexpected stimuli. People with post-traumatic stress disorder take longer to fall asleep, are more sensitive to noise, and awaken more frequently during the night than ordinary people. Thus, traumatic events appear to recondition the human nervous system. Paragraphs like this began the most gripping read I had ever had. I was reading about myself. I was also reading about war veterans. Unfortunately, my brain went into overdrive again. I spent a week in the main reading room of a New York public library plotting a novel that would use PTSD as the great equalizer, bringing together women and men who suffered from the same disorder. But then, in the midst of the narratives I read, I lost the will to intellectualize it. There was a collection of first-person accounts of Vietnam that I read over and over again and kept on reserve. Somehow, reading these men's stories allowed me to begin to feel. One particularly affected me, the story of a hero. He had seen heavy action and watched as his friends were cut down. He bore it all stoically. 
I couldn't help but think of Bob. This vet got home, received decoration, held down a job. Years later, he fell apart. Something gave. The hero could not hold. He became a man by crumbling. The account left off in process. He was out there somewhere, working on it. I'm not part of any religion, but I prayed for that vet and for Bob. I read Herman's entire book. It wasn't a magical cure, but it was a start. I also had a good therapist. She had actually used the words post-traumatic stress a year before, but I had dismissed them as so much psychobabble. True to form, I did everything the hard way. Wrote a column, got it quoted, bought the book, and recognized myself in the case histories of the sick. I had post-traumatic stress disorder, but the only way I would believe it was to discover it on my own. While I was living on 106th, my boyfriend worked late bartending, and I spent the evenings alone. I watched a lot of television. It was an old tenement house in a bad neighborhood. It was what I could afford in New York City on an adjunct salary. I lived behind gated windows, and the nights were regularly peppered with automatic fire. Tech nines were the gun of choice in the neighborhood then. One night, I'd turn the toaster on while coffee was brewing. I blew a fuse. The fuse box was down in the basement. I had to go outside and down a dark stairwell to get there. I called my boyfriend at work. He was brusque. A large crowd had just entered the bar. What do you want me to do about it? Take a flashlight and do it or sit in the dark. Those are your choices. I decided I was being stupid, helpless. I used something I had learned in therapy, inner talking, to psych myself up for the chore. It was around 11 p.m. I reasoned this was not as bad as 2 a.m. To say the least, my inner talking was faulty. Down two flights and out into the street, around the corner, over a wrought iron gate whose lock had rusted shut, down the outdoor stairs, turn on the flashlight. I found the keyhole, inserted the key, got inside. I turned the latch on the inside and stood for a moment against the wall. My heart was racing. It was pitch black and windowless in the basement. My flashlight trailed across a far wall with rooms tunneling into the back. I made out the possessions of a Dominican man who had been evicted a month or two before. I heard rats squeaking in annoyance as my light discovered them. Focus, I said to myself, the glass fuse cold in my hand. And then I heard a noise. I shut off my light. It was outside, against the door, people. Soon, by listening through the door to their Spanglish, I understood I would have to wait a while. I stood two feet from them as he slammed her against the door. Fuck me, bitch, he yelled. I stepped back as far as I could, but staying near the fuse box, what I had come to do, seemed better than going farther into the dark rooms of a sealed-off basement. Once the landlord's nephew had lived down here, my boyfriend told me. He'd been a crackhead, and someone had come in one night and shot him to death. That's why she won't rent to Dominicans anymore, he told me. But she's Dominican. Nothing makes sense up here. Outside, the man grunted, and the woman didn't make a sound. Then the two of them finished. They left. He called her some name in Spanish and laughed at her. For the first time, I allowed myself to feel really scared. 
I changed the fuse and worked myself up to get back inside. My only goal was safety now, and inside the building upstairs was safer than down here, buried in the dust with the rats, the ghost of a murdered crackhead, and a door against which a girl had just been fucked. I made it. That night, I decided to leave New York. I remember reading that many of the men, upon returning from Vietnam, were drawn to places like rural Hawaii or the Florida Everglades. They were recreating the environment they knew best, where their responses to things seemed more natural than they did inside suburban homes scattered across the less lush and green United States. This made sense to me. I'd always lived in bad neighborhoods, except once, when I lived over a wife beater in Park Slope, Brooklyn. New York meant violence to me. In the lives of my students, in the lives of those on the street, it was commonplace. All this violence had reassured me. I fit in with it. The way I acted and thought, my hypervigilance and nightmares made sense. What I appreciated about New York was that it didn't pretend to safety. On the best of days, it was like living in a glorious brawl. Surviving this year by year was an honor mark that people wore proudly. After five years, you earned bragging rights. At seven, you began to fit in. I had made it to 10, almost died in the wool by the projected East Village shelf life. Then, all of a sudden, and to the surprise of those who knew me, I left. I went back to California. I took Bob's job at Dorland while he was away. I lived in his cabin and took care of his dog. I met the colonists and showed them around, taught them how to light a fire in their wood stoves, and taunted them with the specter of kangaroo rats, mountain lions, and the supposed ghosts that roamed the place. I didn't talk about myself much. No one knew where I was from. On the 4th of July, 1995, I was working on a story inside my cabin. It was dark out. The place was deserted. The colonists had gotten together and gone into town. I was alone except for Shady. I hadn't written much in the past two years, since the two months I'd been at Dorlin as a colonist. It seemed unfathomable to me that it had taken so many years to come to terms with my rape and Lila's, but I had begun to accept that it had. It left me with a feeling I couldn't describe. Hell was over. I had all the time in the world ahead. Shady ran into the cabin and rested her chin on my lap. She was scared. What is it, girl? I said, patting her head. Then I heard it too. It sounded like thunder, a summer rain coming on. Let's go see what it is, okay? I said. I grabbed my heavy black flashlight and shut off my lamp. Outside, I could see into the distance. The cabin had a porch and one chair. Very far away and partially obscured by the side of a dark mountain, I could see fireworks going off. I reassured Shady then and sat down on the chair. The fireworks lasted a long time. Shady kept her head on my lap. I would have raised a glass if I'd had one, but I didn't. We made it, girl, I said to Shady, rubbing her side. Happy Independence Day. Eventually, it was time to move on. The night before I left Dorlin, I slept with a male friend of mine. I hadn't had sex in over a year, a self-imposed celibacy. The sex that night was short, fumbling, 
We had gone out to dinner and had one glass of wine. In the kerosene light, I focused on his face, on how my friend differed from a violent man. We both agreed later, when we talked on the phone from opposite coasts, that it had had a special quality about it. It was almost virginal, he said, like you were having sex for the first time. In some sense, I was. In another, this was impossible. But it is later now, and I live in a world where the two truths coexist, where both hell and hope lie in the palm of my hand. Lucky was written and read by Alice Siebold. It was recorded at the Village Recorder in Los Angeles with editing and post-production by Stephen Strassman. The associate producer was Kelly Gilday. The director was Fred Sanders. Lucky was produced by Elisa Shokoff. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. to our channel. Bex here today to do a bit of a different video than what you would normally find on Get Bookish. I wanted to do something that's a bit reflective and can create a discussion down in the comments basically. This is something that has always been going on. It happened way before YouTube BookTube ever existed. It'll continue to happen in the future and that's what happens when a book that you love has an author that's a bad person. The reason this is coming up now is because a couple weeks ago, we got some news about Alice Siebold. She is the author of The Lovely Bones. That's probably where you will most likely recognize her from if you're not sure who she is. And I read The Lovely Bones back in the day before this channel existed and I loved it. It's on my list of favorite books on Goodreads and so because I love The Lovely Bones so much I decided to pick up her memoir Lucky and that's where the problem starts. So I read Lucky back in 2012 and it was actually about nine years ago now and I read the book, loved it, gave it five stars and I filmed a review and put it up on the internet and it still exists there today and people are finding that video and commenting on it because they want to vent their frustration about some news that has come to light about Alice Siebold. So in the memoir Lucky she is talking about uh, her experience of being sexually assaulted when she was a student at Syracuse University. This was back in the early 1980s and there's a lot in this story, if you want more details about like what actually happened with the case and everything, I will link a video by Jess Owens down below where she kind of goes through everything and where we are now. I'm just kind of going to focus on some specifics. When Alice was raped, she was not sure who the perpetrator was and eventually, like five months later, 
she sees a black man on the street and she immediately thinks that it's him that did it, but she doesn't know who he is. She goes to the police. The police suggest someone as who it could possibly be. They put in a lineup and she actually, she can't peg him in the lineup. She pegs a different person than the person she saw on the street or thought she saw on the street. Through some police persuasion potentially, but also Alice herself, she decides to get up on the stand anyway in a court of law and peg Anthony Broadwater as the person who raped her. Fast forward to a few weeks ago and Anthony is exonerated after spending 16 years in prison and having to be labeled as a sex offender his entire life from the moment of that trial until he was exonerated. Anthony Broadwater suffered greatly because of the justice system and Alice Siebold's decision. Now we have to remember that Alice Siebold is a victim as well, but just because she's a victim does not absolve her of the responsibility of what she did. Upon reading the article where it discussed all of this and sort of revealed how Anthony was exonerated, I started just getting this icky feeling in my stomach because I loved her book and what she did is unforgivable. Even though Anthony said all he wanted from her was an apology, which she did eventually release. It took her eight days to release an apology, which I also kind of find inexcusable. But even though Anthony only asked for an apology, no. Like, it just, it's not right. It, it never will be right. There's nothing she could ever do to fully rectify what she did to ruin that man's life. She was not the only thing that ruined his life, but she still actively made that decision to get up on the stand. So how do you deal with that as a reader? When you've had this book in your life for nine years, you've had the lovely bones in your life for even longer as books that you really enjoy. And how do you deal with that in your mind? I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with Alice Siebold's particular story because it is quite fresh and the review that I did, I decided to leave it public because people are sort of using it as a space to just vent their anger. That book review that I did before the news dropped maybe had one view a week, whereas in the past couple weeks, the viewership went up 600% because people are searching for information about this. They want to know about the book and they're stumbling across this review. So as I'm filming this now, those comments are still coming in. There's, there's conversations happening on there, people just venting their frustration. And in a way, it is an outlet for me as well to deal with the fact that Alice is not a good person. She made a decision to do something that is unforgivable. Another layer of this, for me at least, as someone who read Lucky, is thinking back on me reading that book nine years ago, if I were to reread it now, what, what did I miss? Is there something I missed? Should I have picked up on the fact that something was weird here? Because it was so long ago since I read that book, I don't remember how the trial outcome portion of the book played out. From what I understand, the producer for a movie that was being made based on Lucky, he got the script and noticed how different it was from the book and that's when he started to look into what was going on and sort of helped move this so Anthony could get exonerated. But I have to think about when I read this book, were there signs there that I was missing? So there's that little bit of guilt that I have to live with as somebody who read this book and maybe didn't pick up on some things I should have. The issues around Alice Siebold are new, but another example of this that is not quite as new is 
JK Rowling. In 2020, it was around June because I remember thinking it was Pride Month at the time, uh, she started to really be open on Twitter and elsewhere about her anti-trans sentiment. She kind of revealed herself to be a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. So she's somebody that doesn't really think trans people should have rights. And when people reached out to her to try and start a discussion to maybe, you know, teach her some things that she hadn't considered before, she doubled down and said, nope. And since then, it seems like she's been tripling and quadrupling down. I unfollowed her on Twitter at the time. I do not seek out any information from her. If I see anything else at this point about her, it's because I've accidentally stumbled across it. So I cannot speak to exactly where things are at this point in December 2021. But in June 2020, when that happened, it pissed me off. I was angry. And not only because she was spewing this rhetoric that is going to hurt people, but because she immediately ruined something that I loved. I grew up with Harry Potter. I was at a great age for when the books were being released, when the movies were being released. It was a big thing amongst my best friends, Leslie included. And it's just so frustrating to me that I can no longer enjoy something that I loved so much because JK Rowling is a bad person. <laughs> it makes me so angry that she has tainted something that I love. Now with JK Rowling and Alice Siebel, the situations are a little different only because Alice's is so directly related to one of her books that I enjoyed, whereas JK Rowling's is sort of adjacent to her books. That stuff doesn't come up in her books, but because she wrote them, they're her idea, there's still that connection there. And it just makes me so mad that these authors create stories that we read and love, and then we later find out they're not good people. All that being said, how do you deal with this in your own mind? With Rowling, it was definitely a bit harder because it had been so much longer and Harry Potter was such a big part of my life that it was a, it was a lot harder to sort of step away. And one of the things that I have to do is just not mention her on this channel. I don't mention the books. This is the first time I believe that I have mentioned Harry Potter on this channel since she started spewing all of her hatred. And so that's one thing that I have to do. I don't talk about it on social media. I don't put it out there in the public at all. Another element of this is that I have a book by JK Rowling under Robert Galbraith's name for Lethal White, which was the next book in the Cormoran Strike series that I had purchased and had not read when she started talking about all that stuff on Twitter. And now it's just sitting here on my TBR shop. Do I read it? Do I get rid of it? I spent the money on it. And the thing is, I liked this series of books. I was interested in what was happening with these characters. And now I'm in this spot where if I did read it, I wouldn't be posting about it on social media. I wouldn't be doing a book review on it, that's for sure. But what do I do? I spent the money on it. Do I read it? Do I not? I don't know. That's a specific booktube person problem and, you know, maybe other avid readers have that similar issue, but that's something else that I've been thinking about for the last year and a half since we learned that stuff about her. With Alice Siebold's case, it'll be a little bit easier for me to adjust to it because I don't talk about the Lovely Bones and Lucky all the time. I have the Lucky review. I have a review of The Almost Moon, which is another one of her books that I read. Didn't like as much, but that review is still out there as well. And so 
This one is going to be a little bit easier for me to step away from and just never mention again, but that icky feeling in my stomach is always going to be there whenever someone comments on one of my reviews or I see something about it online. So I now turn to you, the person watching this video, and ask how do you deal with this sort of thing in your mind. You might not have the exact same cases as me, like Alice Siebold and J.K. Rowling might not be your specific version, but I know there are other authors out there who have done bad things, and maybe that was somebody whose book you really love. As somebody who makes videos and loves books, I also have to ask myself, what do I do with those authors' books? Do I keep them? Do I remove them from my physical shelves? What do I do with the Goodreads list? The fact that I still have Harry Potter, like the main seven books, and I still have The Lovely Bones on my favorites list on Goodreads. Should I take them off? Should I leave them off? On there. There's this anger and this frustration there because I did love those books when I read them, but how do I enjoy them now? <laughs> Are they still my favorites? Do I just count them as favorites at that time and leave them be? Or do I think, okay, well, are these really my favorites now when I can never fully enjoy them like I used to? When it turns out an author is a bad person, each situation is a little bit different. And so every person has to sort of decide how they're going to deal with this particular instance. For someone like myself who is part of a book channel that's on a public forum that can mean not talking about them ever again, never featuring their books, never putting up book reviews, never posting or sharing anything about it on Twitter. Because I have a platform, it is more important for me to be aware of what I'm putting out there. I never want to look like I'm promoting their stuff and agreeing with what this author has done. Now, what you do in your personal life is a little bit different. I will admit that I still listen to a Harry Potter podcast, Mugglecast. I've been listening to them since they originally started releasing episodes in 2005, but I never share that fact online until now, of course. But I'm just using that as an example and admitting that I haven't completely let go of Harry Potter. I know some people have been able to. I have not been able to completely let go. So like I still listen to a podcast that's put together by fans and they on Mugglecast specifically said they do not agree with JK Rowling's stance and they try to not mention her as much as possible on there. So I decided that that was enough for me, that they publicly said they don't agree, they make an effort not to talk about her on the podcast as much as is as possible, and I still listen to it for that reason. There may be others of you out there who are doing something similar to me, where you have a book series that you loved, the author turned out to not be so great, but there are certain things that you don't broadcast and you still interact with that series on some level. I just want to ask you guys how you deal with it. I don't have the answers for this. It's something that I don't really know what's the right move here. <laughs> it's easier to step away from the books when you don't have such a deep connection with them. I'm talking about books that you absolutely loved, that you've raved about in the past, that you've put stuff out there about how much you love it, and now you have to grapple with the fact that you can no longer love them as much as you once did because the authors did something really, really bad.
I think that is all I have to say on that topic for the moment. Please comment on this video and let me know what sort of situations you've dealt with that are similar to this, whether it's the same authors that I'm mentioning now or other ones, how you've learned to deal with that. What did you do? Did you get rid of their books? Have you completely blocked them out of your life? Or are you trying to at least step away from them as much as possible and remember that yeah, authors can be bad people and publish good books, and unfortunately that's just the way society and humanity happens, and we have to learn to deal with it however we can. Thank you so much for watching this video. As always, all of our links are in the down bar. You can go check those out if you feel so inclined. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. context of white supremacy so i thought we were done it's going to be comments wrap it up we might even finish a little bit early this week and there you go alice Bold lucky hold up there was a spectacular report published just this week january 25 alice Bold, alice Bold case how race and incompetence doomed Anthony Broadwater to prison. Now, for sure, it is racism, white supremacy, not race, and ain't nothing about this that we have read incompetence. All of this is white supremacy rape, racism, raping Negros. That said, there's so much great information in this report. Uh, it's lengthy. I would have just read the report, but it's lengthy. You'll have to check it out yourself. This is at Syracuse.com. Uh, they have a lot of uh, great details about the case. Uh, that they've given over the past few months or so. But this report from this week is just astounding. Uh, it addresses so many of the things that we've talked about in the book and uh, other details. Anyway, <clears throat> pertaining to uh, the last little segment uh, that we heard and what, or anyway, pertaining to the report, the whole reason that I mentioned that at the very end of the Syracuse.com report, they include that the 2017 edition of Lucky has a new afterword that Siebold added after Trump won the presidency. So I was literally scrambling because I've just read this report today. So I was able to get it the afterward in its entirety. So we are not quite done. We will add the 2017 afterward to see what she had to say. Virginity and Donald Trump that's the last word from Siebel, but technically we've read the whole book except for the afterward, which we will add. The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email untiljustice at gmail.com. Drop an email if you have concluding thoughts you would like to share until justice at gmail.com. See if I can get through all of our emails today as well. Uh, one of our investors uh, wrote in. Greetings, Gus. Chapter 13. The police had a theory that Lila might have been raped out of revenge. I wonder if the police ever previously had a case of 
revenge rape in order to come up with such a theory. We are dealing with a power rapist. Remember they had the different classifications of rapists? Aftermath. Number one, the Oprah, then Oprah called having read the article. I have not been able to find the segment. I said that too, like, man, if somebody wants to hook Gus T up with a 13 year cow's anniversary gift, if we survive until next month, if you can track down this Oprah footage, oh, I would love to check it out, man. Uh, number two, I slept with a decathlete and a woman. So you do have anti-sexual proclivities. I thought we had pretty much concluded that already, but always nice to have it confirmed. Number three, I thought it was Houston where the women wore too many ruffles and frills. I asso associate this type of dress with women of Mexican ethnicity in this part of the world. Maybe a subtle act of racism, white supremacy. I could be wrong though. I am not up on my Texas fashion styles, particularly of 20 years ago. Number four, I moved to New York and lived in a minority low income housing project, literally depriving housing from people who actually had few choices. Given what I knew about New York City, there was a long waiting list. Absolutely. Number five, a teaching job at Hunter College. I was adjunct. My students, immigrants, ethnic minorities, city kids. One of those affirmative action jobs for white women, no graduate level degree and gets a job at the college level, but it's just a bunch of minorities. So who cares? Number six, I slept with a male, white of course, friend. It was almost virginal. He said, like you were having sex for the first time. She was finally able to cast out the black beast from her body and restore her sanctity, a fitting end to this abomination of a book. Final thoughts, sort of, because we do have the afterward. I also found Siebel's monotonous reading tone off-putting. Not sure what to make of it. I would love to get Siebold, the lawyers and race soldiers who are all still alive in a deposition with a lawyer of Johnny Cochran's skill. I guess it would have to be a civil as opposed to criminal. I doubt that it will happen because I expect racist man and racist woman will do everything to protect the victimhood of Siebold, no matter how much evidence to the contrary is found. In conclusion, I think there is enough in this book to at least raise serious questions regarding the author's credibility and at worst, whether the rape actually happened. Fascinating and timely read. There's a lot of information in that Syracuse.com report where they try to go and talk to some of the attorneys, uh, Eubuller and Matisse, some of these folks and get some of their thoughts, even the defense attorneys as to why they didn't do a jury trial. It is absolutely fascinating and will just confirm many of the thoughts that we've had. Uh, let's see. I'll check in. See folks who dialed in. Star 6-1 if you have thoughts. Observations again. We are wrapping it all up today. Last session with Alice Bold's Lucky. Uh, let's see. Irie on the line with us. Uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Irie. Salutations. Uh, good evening, Gus. And good evening to everybody listening and the people that's going to call in. Um, I had to catch up on the archives, but I definitely want to want to be here for the um the Sayonara to this terrible book. Um 
I didn't even hear all of the end of it, but what I heard was enough. And I wanted to add that I like how she really liked how she glanced over her time as a trollop um, once she graduated from Syracuse and she's moving around and stuff and, you know, teaching, like you said, what someone said, these non-white kids, uh, which is very incidental to her, you know, and then she goes off and she's probably having sex with older men, white men, um, drinking cheap liquor and accidentally, so-called accidentally poking herself with heroin needles. Um, and I also caught that um, she got, she said she got cocaine sick in the club called the Pyramid. And that was a very esoteric tale for people who are not familiar with the homosexual community. I'm not homosexual myself, but um, taking graphic design and art history in college, I know an artist by the name of Judy Chicago, suspected racist, that made uh, several graphic, um, well, I should say sexually graphic, but so-called artistic displays, some of which maintain the uh, shape of the triangle, and that shape has been co-opted to represent lesbianism. So the pyramid is nothing but a three-dimensional triangle, so she's not even talking on her homosexual experiences in which she has to snort to, you know, have a good time, and, and it made her sick. Yeah, that's all I want to add. So, so, um, boo, uh, Alice C. Bold, you're a liar. And, um, everyone knows it now, whether they want to admit it or not. And thank you, Gus, for weathering the storm. I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Ira. She has written in faithfully, even when she was not able to call in, uh, to make sure she got her views. Uh, shared on this one. Bold-faced liar, she said pretty consistently uh, convinced Irie has been that Seabold is being deceptive with this here tale of Negro rape. Uh, let's see. I will share, well, double check, make sure we're not missing. Keep my eye on the switchboard and then share a few of my thoughts again. I thought we would have this whole chunk to just share our thoughts, but not so fast. We'll get all the folks commentary, but we do have the forward. So we'll see what she added after President Trump's victory. Um, some of the notes that I took from this portion of the reading. Uh, and I'll even say really quick before we move off of the review, like, man, it is so cheap and tacky. You do a review, give this book five stars, say it's great. It's awesome. Stupendous. Wow. I've read everything that this author wrote. And then information comes out later on, like, ooh, and in fact, it's not just, whoa, the black male that was convicted and talked about all dirty in this book was exonerated. They used this book as a part of the exoneration. I mean, yeah, they did go out and, and, and get an investigator and all of that. And uh, they had the FBI uh, admission uh, that all the hair science is bogus pseudoscience and all the rest of it. But they used this memoir to conclude, oh yeah, he didn't do this and this conviction should have never taken place. Our bad. You read this book and missed all of the things that they pointed out that we've been pointed out. In fact, you didn't just miss it. You thought it was great. I don't want to hear about Harry Potter and all that nonsense about what you did or didn't do. Let's get back to this book 
why did I think this book was so great? Why did I miss the problems with the identification and the police didn't even see this guy in their chair? Why did I miss all that? Why did I think all that was worthy of five stars? Not let's hop to Harry Potter. I'm more comfortable talking about that than old Anthony Broadway and calling Anthony Broadwater Anthony that is super plantational you don't know Anthony Broadwater he is not your friend you do not care about these negras you care more about Harry Potter it sounds like than Anthony doesn't get any better than tacky from the white woman uh, so the book notes that I took specifically Alice Ebold is so whiny in this whole book. Just, oh, everything is so terrible and everybody's terrible. Mr. Reinhardt wasn't kind to me. and ugh. I would want her to get away from me as well. I told you last week when she's all rubbing, maybe being anti-sexual uh, with Lila. Like, oh, you had got raped by a nigger too. We can cuddle. Let's do some anti Like, get off. Get away from me. Stop touching me. Like, just back up. Give me 50 feet. Her dad seems like he was saying the same thing too. Like, I'm tired of my daughter being around you. Um, she talks about them going out to Red Lobster. I just thought the cheddar biscuits, I can make some mean vegan cheddar biscuits. Woo, got pictures on the blog. Uh, let's see. She talks about she was to be banished. Uh, I thought she should be banished. Like, get out of here. I think this is more of her white woman playing the victim card uh, again. But I mean, why have you around for what? Just to be clinging? And she even admits to all of this. Needing attention. Uh, let's see. She does so much whining. Her mug gets broken. Man, Anthony Broadwater didn't get a mug. Matter of fact, in fact, in that article that was published this week, uh, one of the indignities, Anthony Broadwater didn't get a Bugs Money, Bugs Bunny mug that crashed. He did, however, get to see his friend murdered during his 16 years of incarceration. He did have that happen. Let's see. She talks about how uh, Pat comes home uh, and is like, oh, man, uh, I didn't or I thought you, you know, would be able to better handle all of this. You know, you've been raped and she screams and yells at him like just total, totally out of control uh, with her emotions. And like I said, the need for attention in all of this being the victim. Uh, let's see. They had put a photo of Madison and his lineup buddy, Leon Baxter, in the pack. I was so mad I couldn't speak. So she's running this lie again that Madison has his criminal band of Negro thieves to fool people in the lineups. This also was addressed in the article today. They were not homies. They were not friends. They saw each other in prison. Uh, and Madison, excuse Anthony Broadwater's attorney, I uh, said, man, can you at least have some other people in the lineup who are somewhat similar to Madison? Like you got these other people who are a totally different height, which I pointed out before, like they're way taller than he is. Like he would really stand out. Can we get somebody who at least is a little bit closer to him? He didn't say he was an identical twin. He certainly didn't say that this is my homie uh, that I called up to fool this white woman in the lineup. And you go in there and gritted her and all that not lie that she presented earlier. Uh, and even the prosecution that she pulls them in and saying that they participated in this in, as well. Uh, let's see. 
to have to pick out her rapist and see him there the focus is all wrong i said to steve i don't even know what that means like are you saying it's a problem that madison is there like he's an area rapist convicted rapist did it look like him is it one of his i, I just don't understand what what the problem is maybe if somebody understood that better they can help me out uh, let's see. She says, I'll never know what the police said to Lila in that room or whether or not she saw her rapist among those men. At the time, I couldn't understand her decision not to pursue it, although I thought I did. The police had a theory that Lila might have been raped out of revenge. They based this on several things. Madison thought, though in Attica, had friends, he had been given a maximum sentence and would be inside a bare minimum of eight years. The rapist knew my name. Da, 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 da. Uh, she goes on to say, I still chose to believe that part of the horror of the crime was in the cruel coincidence. Conspiracy seemed a stretch to me. All of this scene, all of this is not seen. All of this is absolute nonsense. It would be nonsense. Even if it were not revealed, Mr. Broadwater was exonerated. That just makes it doubly embarrassing and nonsense. But you're telling me like you think anybody, even the police are, that makes it even like 50 times worse, exponentially worse informed trained law enforcement officers competent not mentally retarded you think a black male in attica is orchestrating revenge rapes of college white women for what to reduce his sentence to get his comeuppance on an uppity white woman what how is he doing this why doesn't he use all these superpowers to get out of attica The fact that you even put this goofy theory, this racist goofy theory in the book, uh, just further, in my opinion, like, man, we can just make up anything about these Negroes. Like, it does not have to be based in fact evidence at all. Uh, let's see. Then she goes to this whole negro is sneaking through the house and sneaking up the stairway and being silent and knows the whole like <sighs> man uh let's see and and, and i call in virginia she says she writes like a psychopath even within this whole long imagined passage where the rapist is sneaking through the house so i'm gonna get you uh he gets there and he's going to chop off her fingers and everything. She was writing poems about chopping off eyeballs and everything. Like what in the world? This is a five star book that you love. They don't love books where black people talk about chopping off fingers and what have you of racists. At least we haven't found that one on the book club yet. Uh, let's see. She presents that she lost her job because the police came around, I guess, as a part of the investigation. So they got upset about this and said, you know, we don't want you around here. I don't believe this. White people, that's something that's throughout history. A white woman who's allegedly been raped by a black female. And then you got two of them might be a serial raping Negra and white men rebuff you. Get away from here. We don't want you around. I don't believe this. This just seems to me like more of the white sympathy, white victimhood. Woe is me. Lila's dad is mad. Lila rejected me. My job rejected me. The whole world just oh, get out of here. We don't want you. I just don't believe that. Unless it's connected to something else, not this rape investigation. Uh, let's see. 
And then she leaves and bumps into somebody and he says, watch where you're going, which I guess might be a reasonable thing to say. If you're walking down the street for whatever reason, not paying attention and bumping into people, they might watch where you're going. Excuse me. Watch where you're going. Uh, Let's see. And then we get more of the virgin talk. Um, She talks about it being a total blackout from Lila, how she never talks to her again, won't acknowledge her uh, in the street. Even that terminology, we talked about that, the symbolism of white supremacy, racism, electrical black blackouts or social blackouts. Black people, no power, not being not being acknowledged. Uh, Let's see. I talked about the white power and her being able to go to school and not just to get a BA, but to go to get an MA in poetry, like, are you serious? And then to be able to use an MA in poetry to get a job as a teacher, teaching niggers, of course, I mean, but useless degree, you can go and waste all this time and money that right there, what domination looks like. Uh, Let's see. And then the last chapter. So in the book version, the older book version, it ends with aftermath. So it's chapter 13 and then aftermath. Uh, I published a piece in the New York Times magazine. I don't even think Alice Siebold is a quality writer. I haven't read everything that she's written, but this is trash. Like nothing about this book is quality. The metaphors, the structure, the story, her reading tone, like it's trash all the way around. Like there's no point, no value to this other than white supremacy, racism, lynch a black male. That's the only value, the only point to this, unless I missed it. Uh, She says, I had a piece published in the New York Times Magazine, a first person account of my rape. In it, I beseeched people to talk about rape and to listen to articulate victims when they had a story to tell. I couldn't imagine the New York Times offering that sort of space to to, Tawana Brawley. I got a lot of mail. I celebrated with four dime bags and a Greek boyfriend who had once been my student. Now pause right there. I don't know how old this fellow was. Um, at some universities, they have rules about sexual intercourse with your students. Maybe he was non-traditionally aged, whatever the case, but I mean, at minimum boundaries, and then we can just skip over all of the, you got what? Four dime bags. We don't know if it's four dime bags or heroin crack cannabis who knows all of the above what black person do you know would be celebrated get a million copies of their books sold i celebrated oprah winfrey wanted to talk about my piece in the new yorker or new york times or whatever publication by going out getting high and having sex with a former student Are you kidding me? And she went on the show as the victim who fought back. Where did she fight back? I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, unless they mean that little part at the very beginning where she says they tussled or whatever. uh, And he punches her or whatever, drops the knife and then drags her to the tunnel. But I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about in terms of fought back. Did I miss that? Was there more to it? Was there an elbow smash or something that I'm, you know, I've forgotten? Uh, 
VGQ for Oprah and her staff if they didn't vet this properly either. Um, not that they have a history of black misandry, color purple, or anything like that. Uh, let's see. I never made it through graduate school in Houston. I guess that's Anthony Broadwater's fault too, right? Lack of persistence, academic persistence from a white woman. Uh, I didn't like the city, too many Negros. But to be honest, I wasn't cut out for it. I slept with a decathlete and a woman. Now, I mean, this is how you tell me you fail and then you get into your sexual activities with both males and females. Did Super Rick James, Rick James. I bought pot of a guy behind the 7-Eleven and I drank with another student who also dropped out. Now, I don't know if this was her student or not. Again, I mean, like what? This is a five star book. This is the type of stuff that I mean. Like you read this, the white chick from YouTube, you read this. You said this is five stars, this sort of conduct. Really? Getting drugs out behind the 7-Eleven. That's what we want to share. That's what everybody needs to read. Or we going to just chalk that up. That's Anthony Broadwater too. That was the trauma she was still dealing with. I didn't hear Anthony Broadwater in talking about how he's dealt with being a sex offender and 16 years of incarceration where he watched his friend murdered. I didn't hear it as a part of his PTSD from all of that. Man, I went out, you know, you wouldn't believe how many bags I went and snorted behind the 7-Eleven. I didn't, I haven't heard that in any of his stories. And if it was presented, I don't think it would be, wow, he suffered so much. Wow, what he's gone through. Oh, it's a shame. It wouldn't be that at all. Lock him back up right now. He's about to rape some more women. Coked up nigra. Let's see. Low income minority housing project. Absolutely agree with the uh, investor who wrote in uh, again, just taking advantage. This is how she can qualify. She can say she's a minority too. Cause I'm a woman. I'm a raped woman raped by a nigra too. So I'm a double minority really. Uh, let's see. The girl had been adopted by the father for that purpose. I don't know if this is a white man or not, but there's a lot of that activity, Jerry Sandusky type of a thing. And it's easy for white people to adopt non-white children. That was part of Jerry Sandusky. Woody Allen, since we talked about him not that long ago, bingo again. Uh, let's see. They also taught me when she's talking about working with these non-white students and they would come and share with them about their experience of sexual abuse and all the rest. Uh, they told me their stories. They also thought I was a clean slate. I was obviously middle-class or middle-class white girl, a clean slate. What a metaphor. What does that mean? Exactly. I'm not sure. They, they thought she was free of trauma. She hadn't suffered any abuse or mistreatment. Even if she has, she certainly has a lot more resources and being classified as white to deal with it. Prosecute her alleged attacker. If all of this even happened, as she said, still finish out through school, still have support from her family and other friends and what have you can go to other universities, even when she's not cut out for it, probably not even qualified. 
and then can go get jobs that she's not qualified for. So, I mean, hey, I can understand. Like, you seem like you came through this all right. Still in pretty good shape. Slumming, as they say. Minister Malcolm even talked about that. White women and men who like to do a little slumming, come hang out and live amongst the dark people for a little while, do a little drug, narcotics, you know, raunchy sexual activity. Super freak. Rick James. Uh, so last couple things and then we'll get to the forward. Yeah, all this cocaine use uh, and Rastas and white girls, even that together, like, oh, my gosh, that just further, in my view, would convey to the re- the danger of this environment. Drug use, black males, Rastas and white girls. See, it's not white women. It's not white ladies white girls like implied it could be children oh my goodness oh terrible environment that i'm in anthony broadwaters abound uh let's see she talks about being in redneck california i have no idea what that means uh, as compared to what, like areas that are not racist, less racist? No idea. She calls it, talk about minimizing that she was dabbing, dabbling, sorry, in heroin. I have no idea what that means. Dabbling in heroin? Well, like, how do you dabble in heroin repeatedly? Um... And the demand. Oh, she has a dog named Shady. I thought that was important because race soldiers frequently will brand their pets uh, by non-white titles. Uh, Let's see. Told folks you should get your hand up immediately so we can uh, hear your thoughts first. And then I get to my commentary. So be in Santa Rosa. You can get 60 seconds to share your thought. And then we're going to hear the afterward from 2017 because it's kind of lengthy and unprepared like i said i didn't even become aware that this existed until today uh, oh and see lots of people see they snuck put their hand up so we'll get one person just i saw his first be in santa rosa uh 60 seconds share your quick thoughts and right. yes sir 60 seconds can i be heard yes sir all right first since i only got 60 seconds i'm just gonna say this book was trash number one and number two, the uh, the lady at the end who was doing the review, she was more frustrated at her being uh, an anti-sexual person than than uh, Anthony Broadwater going to prison, and um, and and the way how the book end it ended the same way how it began it with uh with, with the word version. So I, I when it ended I gave it a good and then. And, and left it at that. Uh, that's all I have to say. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. See, paying attention to those sort of patterns and what have you and how often virgin is repeated. Anyway, we will have time. Everybody, I see you dread uh, 138, all the folks who dialed in. We will get commentary from everybody today. I thought we would have lots of time. It was just I didn't become aware that there is actually an afterward to the 2017 version. So I wanted to make sure that we get, we lick the pan as they say, and we get it all. And this has some tidbits as well. In fact, that V word one more time, (laughs) at least (laughs) in the afterward, which unfortunately had to be read by yours. Truly. I was a little bit upset about that, that Gusty got roped into doing some narrating, but 
Either way, this is 2017, fresh after the triumph of Donald, Tra- Donald J. Trump, as predicted by Dr. Welsing at the polls. Alice Sebo cashed in on Me Too and white feminism. Context the white supremacy, be lucky afterward. Afterward. It has been 36 years since I was raped. 18 years since Lucky was first published and only two months since a multiple molester and proud pussy grabber was elected the 45th president of these United States. For me, as for many women who have survived sexual assault, I was horrified, though perhaps not shocked, by the outcome of the 2016 election. In the life of most victims of rape, unfathomable injustice is par for the course. My own story remains 36 years later, more just in how it ended than most. My story had the beginning, middle, and end that the majority of rape cases don't. The rapist was arrested, brought to trial, convicted and served nearly two decades in jail. Compare this to the two or three month slap on the wrist sentences we've seen recently and you begin to understand that I chose the title lucky both because I had indeed been truly lucky but also because the ironies of how we define luck never seem to stop. In the immediate aftermath of my rape in 1981, I made a promise to myself that if I survived, I would write about it. I was an 18-year-old freshman and I read and wrote poetry obsessively. I devoured obscure journals and dug deep in old bookshops for back issues of poetry or American Poetry Review, poetry was my oxygen. Even to me, that sentence now sounds a bit off-putting, but when I was 18, I believed wholeheartedly in, to put it broadly and in terms, I thought of it then, the power of art. Though my fervent belief in poetry might have seemed naive, perhaps the most shocking proof of innocence was that at 18 I still believed in a just world. Also, unlike many of the women and men I began hearing from after Lucky was published, I knew instinctively that what had been done to me in that tunnel was wrong. Also, here's luck. I had been beaten up enough that there was no way to hide it. In the end, it took another 18 years to write a book about my rape and a switch from poetry to prose along the way, and even though no little girl dreams of growing up getting raped and then writing a book about it, I was not unhappy with its publication. I say not unhappy because what I wanted to write was a novel, not a memoir, and though 
that novel would come two years later and do well enough in the world to allow Lucky to reach more readers, I now feel I was destined to write Lucky. Many of us have a purpose we do not choose, but that instead finds us in the dogged way such things do. I used the thing that I loved the most, which was language, to translate into prose the worst violence I had ever known. Dodging that, I eventually realized, for the sake of myself and for the sake of those victims who remain silenced by shame or family or cultural imperative, was not an option. After Lucky came out and my story was known, and especially after The Lovely Bones was published, I began meeting men and women, young girls and boys, who had been raped and molested, and this, along with the amount of mail I received that contained detailed accounts of rape and incest, overwhelmed me. I had unwittingly created a space where people who had experienced sexual violence could tell their story, and for many years I was the first person with whom they had ever shared these stories. The rushed disclosures in book signing lines or the long single-spaced letters and, most poignantly perhaps, the still childlike handwriting on ruled paper would frequently include this phrase, what happened to me isn't as bad as what happened to you, but the accounts of sexual violations that followed often seemed far worse than my own. I received a shocking number of letters from girls or boys who had been raped by family members who believed that what had happened to me was worse because I'd been raped by a stranger. Evidence, if any, were needed of how a perpetrator can rape not just the body but also the brain. I now understand that what happened to me isn't as bad as what happened to you is part of a pattern that begins in the seconds after an attack. If you have been shoved deep underwater, you do anything to reach the surface and to pull in as much life-giving air as you can to survive. This includes dismissing or diminishing the gravity of experience in order to distance oneself from horror and, given the circumstances, what may well have been death. The police said I was lucky because I wasn't murdered. My father said he was glad it happened to me and not my sister because, in his mind, I was tougher. And then there was this. I'm glad it happened because I wouldn't be who I am now if it hadn't. This last one is said by people who have survived war, cancer, been orphaned by natural disaster, become paralyzed in a road accident. It was for a very long time said by me. The harder truth is this. 
if I could take a magic eraser to that night in 1981, I'd do so in a heartbeat, and if I could have told every young person who had been raped by a relative that in comparison to them, I was indeed lucky, I would have done that too. But all I could do was write one book and tell one story. Unfortunately, there are no do-overs, and the greatest challenge after gaining safety remains living with the knowledge of the life that was taken from you. This is how I was introduced at the first public reading I gave for Lucky in 1999. Alice Siebold is here today to read to us from her memoir concerning the horrible thing she experienced from which she has now thankfully recovered. Though it would be easy to make fun of the ladies' luncheon at which I was a guest speaker that day, I can't help but defend them. Compared to countless other venues, they took me on despite the apparently sordid, unmentionable topic I'd had the temerity to write about. Still, as I made my way to the podium, I began to feel an old familiar fury grow inside me. I now find anything that tries to obfuscate the truth of rape and its aftermath infuriating because it represents a further deceit of the world at large and the victim herself. It's like slapping a smiley face on a corpse. In our desire to protect people from the truth, we do them a disservice by attempting to hide it. This only creates a new level of distraction from what is most important, which is coming to terms with the cards you were dealt. Eighteen years after I'd been raped, and despite the stamp of esteemed publisher on my story, the woman introducing me didn't feel able to use a simple four-letter word. In avoiding it, she perpetuated the idea that rape was still taboo. Her omission made me do something that goes against my basic character, as I've never been a fan of audience participation. But what inspired me that day was a sort of rage against shame. I would not permit what I saw as censorship even if enacted by a blameless woman who more than anything probably wanted to be polite. I took a moment at the mic to make eye contact with members of the audience, making sure to include those in the front and back and to my left and right. When I did speak, I was so calm in my delivery that it would seem as if I did this every day. Rape, that's the horrible thing that happened to me. We at least have to learn to say the word. Let's all do it together, okay? I felt as if I had turned the clock back and was reliving the day nearly two decades earlier. 
where I had insisted on saying the word aloud in my parents' living room in front of my favorite church lady, Myra Narbone. I want to pause here to note that Myra, a spitfire to the end, lived well into her 90s and, when Lucky came out, there was no bigger fan. Encouraging an audience to say rape was never going to be easy, but after a few rounds of me going it alone and adding encouragement, more and more people went from mortified silence to whispering the word to finally joining me in saying it aloud over and over. Doing this together in such an unexpected way resulted in a quality of exchange with my audience that I went on to feel was my responsibility to bring to any public event I did. I didn't always succeed, but I was smart enough to know that just as inside any courtroom, the success of my presentation may have been based not only on the power of my words, but also on my appearance and behavior. Sometimes readers would say they were surprised at how funny I was during the Q&A, which of course meant that I didn't seem to be who they expected a rape victim might be. Many men felt compelled to apologize for what had happened to me. I thanked them for their kindness, but would also smile and say, you didn't rape me, so we're cool. At this point in history, the male gender cannot bear all the blame. Just ask men who were raped by their mothers. But I also see now that I had a tendency to joke in the face of readers' sincerity because for years I'd remained uncomfortable with the feeling of being other than. In the end, we tell each other our deepest secrets because we want these stories to be acknowledged. We also dream that when acknowledged by a few, we might then be understood. If the full narrative of one's life is embraced by others, this opens up the possibility of intimacy or community. If instead it is met with awkward silence or a change of subject on the part of the listener, then the doors of the heart begin to shut down. The message has been received. No one wants to hear your story. No one actually cares. Locked alone in a room with a secret deemed so unspeakable it can't be shared, the imprisoned person will go to any lengths to escape. One need search no further for the origins of addiction and other self-harming behaviors. Anything is preferable to being sentenced to suffer such pain all by yourself. It makes sense then that I've never felt more engaged than when I spoke to readers or even non-readers about their lives. Because of Lucky, I have met many more rape victims than I ever thought possible. The youngest one was eight. 
She was an incest victim and haunted by night terrors. She had not read Lucky, but her mother had, and she brought her daughter to a reading so the little girl could shake my hand. The oldest was a woman in Australia who, when she reached the table at which I was signing books, told me the story of being raped in the 1940s. When this elderly woman, through tears, told me that she had never told anyone this, I felt nearly as lost at sea as I had when I shook the hand of the eight-year-old. Often, after a reading, a few men and women will thank me for coming, and though they may say nothing more than this, a flash of eye contact will let me know that a version of what happened to me happened to them. Some will actually use those words as I sign a book or shake a hand. For a moment, any sense of what I'd felt was my essential otherness evaporates. Given the opportunity, an afterward affords, I want to thank them. Perhaps because I had decided to prosecute my rapist and had never denied the fact that I'd been raped, my well-meaning mother and the friends who knew about my past would send me clippings and later links to news stories or court decisions they thought might be of interest to me. I never had the heart to tell them that I rarely read or clicked on them. It's the black humor version of the good humor story my father would tell, namely that having worked in an ice cream parlor and been allowed to eat all the ice cream he wanted for free, he had gone off the stuff. I never once called to find out when or if my rapist had been granted parole and I did not keep up to date on the ticks of progress or the avalanches of setbacks in the justice system as far as various sex crimes were concerned. I share this trait with many former soldiers I've met. In some way, you are never not aware of the topic people may most closely associate you with because you are living its aftermath every day. Even for me, who put her name to a book about rape, there remains a continual push and pull between my sense of responsibility to other victims and what, barring that experience, I would have been doing had I never been raped. I am a writer, so I wrote about rape. In light of a presidential election where the experience of women was deemed irrelevant, if even truthful, by millions of American men and women, it was hard to come to the writing of this afterward in a cheery frame of mind. It may be the very fact that we're hearing more stories of rape and sexual assault that marks our greatest progress. Yet it goes without saying that this is not enough progress, that it has not come soon enough, 
and that there are still too many cases where privileged young men have gotten what equates to a slap on the wrist after being proved in court to be unapologetic rapists. But given that collective action can only happen if there are enough voices to form a collective in the first place, it's a start. As I write this, the state of California has voted to rescind the statute of limitations in rape cases. Clear proof of the power of victims telling their stories. Another striking example of the progress to be had by creating a collective can be seen in the 2015 documentary, The Hunting Ground. The film centers around two young rape victims, Annie E. Clark and Andrea Pino, who, while enrolled at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, were raped by fellow students. After finding themselves further abused by the lack of support from UNC, Clark and Pino reached out and essentially created their own grassroots network of sexual assault victims from colleges across the country. Ultimately, they and many other student rape victims would go on to sue these schools for discrimination under Title IX, which provides that a school must ensure that all students have equal access to education regardless of gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity. This means that a school can be found legally at fault if they do not actively respond to a student's claim of sexual harassment or sexual assault and take steps to ensure the victim's safety and well-being. As a drama alone, The Hunting Ground is riveting to watch and it also serves as a mini-education on why silencing reports of rape is currently the choice for those in power. The filmmakers have said that it was the response on college campuses to their previous documentary, The Invisible War, concerning rape in the military that inspired them to make The Hunting Ground. The film unmasks the links to which a college will often go to protect a potential perpetrator over his victims for the sake of the almighty dollar. The financial incentives to dump the student victim and defend the student perpetrator are too great to ignore because so often the perpetrator is either a star athlete which directly translates to revenue for the institution he attends or a member of a highly funded campus fraternity. Rip away any romantic notions of colleges as ivory towers and know that in order to survive, they have become businesses first and foremost. Rape charges made public threaten alumni, support, and healthy enrollments. And while we assume, perhaps at our children's peril, that a college's mandate is to both nurture and protect all of its students, institutions that have vigorous athletic departments and many with nationally ranked teams that serve to increase the school's status in a commercial world end up being guilty of further abuse against their very own students. Just as many countries downplay the incidence of violence against women so as not to harm tourism, 
many colleges would prefer that parents and students remain in the dark about a very real threat. If, even in the atmosphere of what is deemed higher learning, those who report being assaulted by fellow students are frequently accused of lying by both the administration and their peers, why wonder that almost a carbon copy of this form of injustice played out repeatedly in the run-up to our presidential election. Donald Trump stated and or implied that all of the women who came forward to say he had made unwanted advances toward them or worse had actually fondled them were liars. He also stated that many were not good-looking as if to imply that being molested by him was an honor and he did not deem these women hot enough for such greatness to be bestowed. As a result of Trump's denials and their tone, many versions of his slanderous comments were repeated and then further hideously embroidered by certain supporters of his campaign. These women, who had been brave enough to tell stories they had never intended to share but who were motivated to do so for the sake of their country, in the end added up to zero in a large block of our voting public's consciousness. The day after the election, I saw a young woman in my local dog park. We don't know each other's names. I am distinguished only by the fact that I have a dog that her dog likes to chase. Even though the question how are you would end up being double loaded that day, I asked it reflexively. When she answered me, her eyes were rimmed with tears, but her words seethed with ill-concealed rage. Can you imagine coming forward about being raped by your boss in Trump's America? Though she couldn't know it, I'd seen the look in her eyes countless times before. I still don't know her name, but I believe I do know something more about her than I had before that day. I also worry her experience may now become something she will fear to confide the details of to anyone. I would spend years trying to find someone who had been through what I had and was also interested in talking about it. The attempts I made at this over many years were blind and almost always fruitless. The lack of finding others became a permanent ache and so I eventually ended up on the safe but deadly shores of self-isolation. In case you missed it, and I can understand why you might, the progress that I saw reflected in the hunting ground is the fact that more sexual assault victims are telling their stories, which frees others to do the same. United voices turn into action. Though I can't change the facts of my past, I found myself wishing for something equally futile that, if raped, it would have happened in a time where it was a bit less difficult to make contact with others and by doing so perhaps have access to a certain solace bread of commonality. At the few public events I did upon Lucky's publication 
and then at the many more I did after the unexpected success of my novel The Lovely Boons, I would tell readers that when it came to violent sexual assaults, mine was actually comparable to an introductory course if judged alongside sex crimes committed around the world every day. I even called it Rape 101. Women are a degraded class across the globe. In many places they are treated worse than animals, whose value is deemed higher. The female body is a physical commodity easily traded for profit or status. If violated against her will, the woman herself is frequently blamed and then disposed of by family and community as one might a soiled rag. I remember being horrified the first time I heard about the virgin cure in South Africa. In the belief that by raping a virgin one could be cured of AIDS, the incidents of rapes and gang rapes, many of them fatal, escalated wildly in the populations of girls under five. When I called my own experience Rape 101, I was indulging my penchant for dark humor. But in all honesty, my deepest hope was that if a reader saw what happened to me as unjust, then Lucky might stand as a doorway from which rape could be seen more clearly as the entrenched cultural imperative it has been for centuries. The surest form of living genocide committed almost exclusively by one gender against another. I was 37 when Lucky was first published. I am 54 now. I still believe, as I did at 18, that the key to effecting true change is to attach individual faces and names to crimes of sexual assault. One of the most striking magazine covers of recent years came from New York in July 2015. It was a portrait of 35 of the women who had publicly accused Bill Cosby of assault. They were pictured in four rows running across the white page and all were seated in identical chairs. One empty chair remained begging the question of those who were still too afraid to speak. It was a little more than a year from the time of my rape to the final trial. During those 12 months, there was an arrest followed by a lineup, various pre-trial motions and hearings, the grand jury trial, and many phone calls concerning details that needed to be followed up. The nights I could sleep were often full of nightmares. On other nights, I would lie awake and imagine spearheading a movement to get famous women who had been raped to reveal their past. Not that I wished ill on anyone, but I couldn't help thinking how powerful it would have been if Queen Noor of Jordan or Jackie Joyner Curse or then newly appointed Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor had been through what I had and had come forward. I do remember my mother or father telling me about an actress they knew who had been raped and that hearing this was a godsend. There she was, accomplished in her field and famous by then for decades. On top of this, she was also 
long married and an iconic beauty on september 19 2014 i read a column by charles m blow in the new york times a political and cultural journalist he was coming forward to tell the story of being molested by an older cousin of his when he was a boy it made me raise my fist and weep the tears came in simple solidarity the fist because i knew how powerful his story would be for men who had been sexually assaulted and stayed silent for years for centuries now the shame and resulting silence surrounding crimes that have at their center a sexualized act has damped any hope of building strength through numbers and though obviously no one wants to qualify to be a member of this group the only other alternative is isolation from the self first and as a result from those around you both of these make true intimacy between people impossible rape is not about sex but uses a sex act to convey brutality true intimacy is not about sex but sex is one of the surest ways to express our love if rape victims in 2016 are still too often disbelieved disowned or degraded there has also been undeniable positive change because of the increase in sexual assaults now reported and the rise of the internet citizens themselves have begun to vocalize in revolt against cases of obvious injustice in people v turner a stanford student was found guilty of having raped an unconscious woman with a foreign object sentenced to only six months in jail the rapist was out in three an outraged public called for the removal of the judge while the victim's fiercely articulate impact statement was read aloud on cnn and after being posted online has been read by well over 10 million people the more citizens who show up at rallies such as those that followed in the wake of the turner case the more likely it is that women and men who have experienced sexual assault will understand that what happened to them has nothing to do with who they are but everything to do with the fact that those who attack them are criminal deviants even if they hide behind the guise of a loving father a college athlete coach or a billionaire businessman as a culture america favors stories of triumph it complements our whitewashed origin myth complication nuance or the reality of the constantly shifting weights and balances of real life on those we are not so keen in writing lucky i was aware that the bones of my story could easily be made to fit the always appealing tragedy to triumph rubric if i began as a virgin rape victim I then went on to see my rapist found guilty of six of the seven felonies with which he was charged. But triumph, like happiness, is an elusive state. It flickers briefly before diminishing. Even within the first few years after the events described in Lucky, life began to hand me more challenges. My roommate was raped on my bed. I experienced physical abuse from a partner 
though I did not stick around long enough to be apologized to a second time, and I encountered over and over the truth about why some of us are judged to have triumphed over adversity while others are not. Luck, there's that word again, has so very much to do with it. My rapist was poor, black and uneducated, and came from a family with an entrenched criminal record. I was a middle-class white girl attending an expensive university, and I was raped not on property owned by the college, but in a public park on the edge of it. The fact that I was proven to have been a virgin by the medical examination and had been visibly beaten was gravy when it came to making it an obvious case of rape in the eyes of the legal system and like the victim in the Stanford case I knew that my words mattered take the exact same case but mad lib the roles and specifics example the rapist is a middle or upper class white professional from a well-respected family. He rapes a transgender Filipina prostitute in a hotel room. The crime itself is exactly the same, but the chances of conviction? Not even in the same ballpark. A male student at an elite university is held down by members of an elite fraternity and anally raped with a bottle of Jack Daniels? Chances? of a conviction if the victim is brave enough to come forward? You tell me. There are few windows where large groups united can affect a culture for the good. If not taken advantage of, these windows close swiftly and opportunity is lost. So here I am hoping that if we can resist the urge to subdivide our nation post-election we might continue to grow a power base and in doing so find light enough to progress in the weeks following the election I thought of one of my favorite books from childhood the Sneetches by dr. Seuss in a land populated by upright Seussian beasts I turned the pages to watch them descend into lives of ludicrous waste based purely on the fact that some sneeches had stars on their bellies while other sneeches lacked stars upon bars. I know I'm not alone in having thrilled at the one-for-all, all-for-one mentality that, after much righteous recrimination and posturing, these sneeches ended up adopting, sadly having been taught this philosophy as children, it is not how most of us try to live our lives. When I was raped, no one used the term survivor. Such subtle semantic changes had not yet taken hold. And because the idea that the word victim was not just a word, but could be an identity was also something I hadn't heard prior to being raped. I never saw the term rape victim as anything but a descriptor. I was a rape victim in the same way I was a brunette or a United States citizen or the child of an alcoholic.
all were fixed truths. But in the years following my experience, this simple descriptor was parsed to such an extent that by inflating its meaning it became robbed of simple context. I began to be scolded when I failed to use the word survivor in place of victim. In print interviews I gave after becoming an author, the journalist, or perhaps it was his or her editor, hit replace all and without my consent changed victim to survivor. Pig-headedly I continued to use the word victim in public where particularly concerned people might inform me that what they liked about me was that I had so clearly never been a victim that I was a survivor through and through. My response to the victim versus survivor debate, talk about sneeches, is to agree to split the difference. I'll agree that I'm both, but first and foremost, I'm a writer. What matters more to me than anything is to maintain my right of word choice. Before coming to this afterward, I reread Lucky for the first time since recording the audiobook back in 2002. Looking again at these pages, I find that I now have more empathy for those who tried to help me without any instruction manual or cultural common knowledge. But perversely, I also now have greater empathy for those who couldn't or didn't know how to help me or, worse still, those who may have inadvertently hurt me. With the clarity that comes with time, one's luck is laid bare, and although I will never forgive my rapist, I do possess compassion for what circumstances in his life and mind might have led him to devastate mine. I also may wish that I had never been raped and therefore left unwritten both Lucky and the Lovely Bones, but I was and I did. In the end, I think my greatest luck has been in finding the words to tell my story and in the fact that they were heard. Alice Seabold, January 2017. Alrighty, I promise everybody who dialed in, if you have a hand up to comment, we will get you in. I just thought it was significant, very, <laughs> to make sure we didn't leave that out. No forgiveness for no count Anthony Broadwater. Now, uh, Dread138, all the other folks here, if you hand up, even our caller B in Santa Rosa, you can have more than 60 seconds. Anything that you want to share as we wrap up our final thoughts on Lucky. Alice Seabold. In fact, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to do two things and then I get everybody, as I said, no limits, anything you want to share. Number one, the article that I encourage everybody, if you spend any time at all with us reading Alice Seabold's abomination, lucky, you should take like five minutes. It's not uh, a dictionary or whatever, but I mean, it is an amazing uh, report. Uh, it's at Syracuse.com. Uh, the full report is titled, uh, now I said I did, you know, not the best wording, but whatever. Um, the full title, Alice Seabold case, how race and incompetence doomed Anthony Broadwater to prison. 
the two quick tidbits uh, that I'll share. One, at several points during the trial, Mastine emphasized that Siebold was a virgin. Broadwater's lawyers would later describe that in late legal papers as an attempt to play up racial aspects of the case, the white female victim's virginity lost to her black rapist, in quotes. Mustine argued at the trial that Siebold was more likely to remember her rapist's appearance accurately because she was a virgin. Skipping down to the very end of the report, they write, the judge who heard the plea, Gordon Cuffey, is the only black criminal court judge ever to hold countywide office. He was appointed to fill the same seat that Gorman, who is white, held decades ago. He was the judge for this trial, and they point out in this report the incorrectness of the judge talking to Alice Siebold. Remember, we talked about that and said, man, did he hang out with the defendant? Did they do that? Go hang out with uh, the response? Or it's not the defendant, the prosecutor? Did they do plaintiff? Sorry. Did they hang out with the plaintiff and chatted up in between uh, sessions? And they talked about in the article how at minimum, that is improper. And they said exactly what I said. Do you go hang out? Did the judge go hang out with O.J. Simpson during the trial? And how would people feel about that? Anyway, uh, Gordon Cuffey uh, isn't talking, but imagine what was on his mind as he read of this debacle. He is the same age as Broadwater and he was a fellow student with Siebold at Syracuse University. Cuffey came to Syracuse University in 1979 from a poor family in Brooklyn, New York. He graduated in 1984, the same year as Siebold. After going back to Brooklyn for law school, Cuffey returned to live in Syracuse. In 1990, he landed a job as an assistant district attorney. Cuffey acquired a personal perspective on race and Syracuse police work. In the early 1990s, he lived on East Fayette Street and drove a Mercedes-Benz, dun-dun-dun, a gift from his father that sometimes got him pulled over for no reason. I was stopped by the police several times, he said. We'll stop there. Thought I remember something similar with the late Johnny Cochran. Uh, all righty, let's see. Uh, all the folks who dialed in, much obliged for your patience. Uh, if you have concluding thoughts on the afterward any portion of the reading Alice Siebold's lucky uh, if you have a hand up dread 138 line should be open uh, and or be in Santa Rosa if you'll have additional thoughts feel free maybe hurt <clears throat> excuse me maybe hurt dread 138 yes sir yes good evening Gus good evening callers good evening participants uh, this process and um, the takeaway, just uh, overall, and then after listening to the afterward, I, I came up with just simple, a simple um, assessment. What a crock! And I just, I just leave it at that. I'm going to be try to jump. Around. I'm going to start with the, the new afterward. Some of the stuff I, I noted, um, rather than highlight the uh, highlighting Bill Cosby, rather than the other high-profile white predators at that time. Uh, who were making it news. And then when she talked about Mr. Broadwater, she somehow um, still managed to insult him, saying that the family had a, I think it was a trench criminal record. I, I just noticed that was fascinating. Um, the article you posted today was fascinating. 
lots of further insight to um, this case of um, particular case of white supremacy. Um, let me see. Uh, going back now, going back to the first reading where um, Lila was raped and then reported to Steve, and then he's um, in the shower, I guess, staring at his penis. I just wrote down a, a welting moment. Then I also noted. It's no coincidence she showed him again. She's like I said, she's a um person that knows a lot about words and, and language, so notice that um the chapters is, is she ends on chapter thirteen, which is supposed to be an unlucky number. And the the title of the book is Lucky. Uh, like I said, I talked about um that bookish um review. I think that was the one I had mentioned it early in the reading. And then I just um uh, Kind of um, chuckled at um, Iris, Iris' assessment of uh, her her trollop days, and I, I wrote down Superfreak's diary the night after hanging with, with James, and then I noted um, Lila and Seabolt falling out. That whole passage is something she's not being forthright. She didn't. Um, something happened other than, like I said, then. Um, Lila just didn't want to be around her, so like I said, maybe she was trying to practice anti-sex against um, Lila because she was already crushing on her, as they say. And then my like I said, I had another takeaway: that deception is the most powerful tool within the um, within the system of white supremacy. Uh, also, both she and her sister had useless degrees, and I think think that um, also speaks to the unjust network networking. She can be drunk and still wind up with a adjunct. Uh, professor John, I'm in line with that. Thank you. Cracked out, drunk, all of it, and still snaring jobs. He said, Super Freak's Diary, A Night with Rick James. Good Lord. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is a title to sell some books. Uh, being Santa Rosa, did you have additional commentary to share? Uh, yes, I do. Um... I, I just feel like I feel like the only people that was raped is is us and Anthony Broadwater. Like this rape was horrible. Um, uh, it, it was something else she, uh, she had said in that final part. I just can't remember because I was driving. I couldn't take my notes, but if it pops back in my head, I'll I'll let you guys know. But I'm, I'm just happy it's over and. Like I said, I just feel like I was meant to be raped. I don't know why. Tough one. Tough one. Uh, we had a white person who wrote commentary in as well. I'll share his thoughts and then uh, make sure we wrap up. Won't miss anybody. So if you have commentary, just don't wait till the end. Get your hand up. She mentioned The Hunting Ground. <clears throat> that is a documentary I'm very familiar with. I'd already watched it, read some of the criticisms. Uh, of it, lots of weeping white women uh, all throughout that film. One point that they do bring up, they actually speak to Danielle Dirks, who is a white woman suspected racist. She wrote the book Confronting Campus Rape. One point that I think I've said over and over, especially this week after we got crack and heroin and weed and alcohol and seemed like you name the narcotic is here. One tidbit that I agree with completely from the hunting ground, they said... We've known for probably 25 years now that the, the problem of sexual assault on college campuses is enormous. On college campuses, it is not the person jumping out of the bushes or in the parking lot 
who is going to rape or sexually assault you. It is the person whom you know, um, the person you may have classes with, the person you see at a party. We think about, it's, you know, the people that we don't know that we should be worried about, but it's really the people that you do know that you should be worried about. Old Brock Turner is much more of a problem than Anthony Broadwater. Duh. We had said that throughout. That's why I said this book does a disservice because this is not even really getting at the problem of what's happening at places like Syracuse. Uh, and they point that out specifically. It's not Anthony Broadwater, the Negro rapist leaping out from the tunnel. And uh, that's not that's Candyman. Brock Turner is way more likely. And in fact, they doubled down. This comes down again. They get a white man convicted sex offender. He comes and he talks about what's the same thing been saying the whole time. Was that moron? So he says, says sobriety would be best. I was incarcerated for six and a half years for sexual assault. I, I know I was at fault. And, you know, like I said, I, I guess the reason I really wanted to do this interview was to maybe help someone else out. You know, maybe have them become aware of, you know, what they're doing wrong. The really practice sex offenders identify groups of people who are more vulnerable. College is a place where lots of alcohol is consumed and the uh, number of victims is endless. These men select victims ahead of time. It could be a bar, it could be a, a fraternity party where, where people are drinking. At the parties, like frat parties, I mean, people are getting wasted. So it's not like um, a lot of the time, depending on who they're with, nobody um, keeps an eye on them. The alcohol is essentially a weapon that is used to, to render somebody extremely vulnerable. Alcohol definitely makes it easier to overpower a victim if they're inebriated or under the influence. Less struggle for sure. And then there's an isolation phase. So you have somebody who has deliberately gotten this young woman extremely intoxicated. And at some point, he says to her, I'll walk you back to your room, or you can sleep it off if you want. We have a bed upstairs. And that's where the assault occurs. They get you with the rot gut punch first. Remember that from last week? The rot gut punch. And then all the rest. Of, hey, if we really are about this, and especially if you want to address this to college, ladies, gentlemen, since this happened on the college campus, hey, why not really go out about all the alcohol since that seems to be a major problem throughout the book? Narcotics in general. Nah. Tie that right in with Brock Turner, who she didn't even name, unless I'm mistaken. I narrated it. I don't think I said Brock Turner. She mentioned Turner in the court case, and she said his last name, but I mean, she named Bill Cosby. She didn't name Brock Turner. Anywho. Uh, I'll give out some of my quick thoughts from the afterward and then we'll wrap. Make sure no one else has any thoughts from the afterward. Uh, when she said she thought she was destined to write Lucky, something about that just stood out to me, particularly since I think it's fictional. Um, that just, yeah, something about that just stood out to me. Uh, when she continues, she says, uh, she began meeting men, women, young girls, and boys. That's one thing that I can 
uh, appreciate acknowledging that uh, it's not just females who are raped, although she kicks that over later uh, in the book as well and just saying or in the afterward by saying that this is one gender uh, perpetuating a crime against another, basically. Uh, let's see. She from there, she says. I now find anything that tries to obfuscate the truth of rape. I just I use that word all the time talking about they normally the obfuscation is of white supremacy racism and it seems like we had some of that in this book as well. I mean talking about obfuscation, Anthony Broadwater's like, man, obfuscation, my goodness, I haven't pff, raped anybody. Uh let's see. She goes on, she says Yep, this is quoted in the article that I read today from Syracuse Got Tom. I was smart enough. I was smart enough, not ignorant. I was smart enough to know that just as inside any courtroom, the success of my presentation may have been based not only on the power of my words, but also on my appearance classified as white and behavior. And she wore red, white and blue to the courtroom. She bragged about that last week. She says, uh, Ask men who were raped by their mothers. Again, males are victims of rape as well, and females rape. Uh, she continues. She says, I never once called to find out when or if my rapist had been granted parole. Uh, just the <laughs> man, Mr. Broadwater had to hang out for 16 years, and again, they punished him uh, because he wouldn't admit that he committed this crime. Uh, and so they said, oh, you're not going to admit it. Oh, well, stay in here another three years. So, but I didn't, I didn't well, stay in here another five years, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, if you admit it, we'll let you out sooner, but he didn't want to do that. So, uh, let's see. But she says she, yeah, I never, I don't know if this is like a brag or what, but her saying that she never once called to check on his parole status or anything else like, man, uh, she continues. Let's see. After the Trump, oh my gosh, man, you want to talk about faux white victimhood, this white woman, she cashes in. So they say, hey, I know this book didn't even do that well. They said it sold like 15,000 copies. Lucky I'm talking about when it first came out. And she said repeatedly that the lovely bones is what got this book to be more successful, sell a million copies. But I know this book has been out for 15 years and did whatever it did moving forward. We moving on with like got other things to talk about other raping black males and things to complain about. I know. Why don't we cash in on President Trump, ignoring the fact that 52 percent of white women voters selected President Trump? They picked him both times around. In fact, I know. Let's do an update and you can write an introduction and tie in some Bill Cosby rage and President Trump outrage and cash in on a whole new market of feminist scholars and critiques. We can get on some syllabi for classes and all that. Like, are you serious? And she puts this little tacky anecdote in there. Can you imagine coming forward about being raped by your boss in Trump's America? Can you imagine being a black female or male in a system of white supremacy regardless of who is in the White House, even Obama, and getting any assistance in, oh, I was raped? Who cares, nigga? Get out of here. Oh, the gall from a white woman who probably voted for Trump. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 she continues. She brings virgins being raped in South Africa. See, I said the virgin just continues. Like she cares about anybody on the continent of Africa. This is like classic illustration when they say straw man. You present a person, generally a person or an argument. You don't really care about them. You're just using them for whatever, you know, a little cheap point that you're trying to make for the moment. Uh, let's see. She says, I was indulging my penchant for dark humor. Another odd one. Uh, She loves the portrait of Bill Cosby. He can be named, not Brock Turner. Uh, Let's see. She says, not that I wished ill on anyone. She talks about wanting Jackie Joyner Kersey and all these famous folks to come out and talk about being raped or what have you. You did wish ill on Anthony Broadwater. You wrote that poem and all the rest. You said you hated him. Uh, Let's see. I thought it was so important. She says on September 19, I read a column by Charles M. Blow. I just mentioned Charles Blow. I've talked about him for a while because I've been reading his columns for years. Dr. Welsing used to read his columns. He would talk a lot about racism, although uh, he spent a lot of time uh, talking about President Trump during his presidency. That was kind of in vogue complaining about him. Uh, But I said consistently he is a black male who openly talks about being bisexual. He's talked about his experience. I suspect Alice Siebold mentioned him. This helps deflect any criticism that she could be racist. The tone of her book, Charles Blow, is a person who talks about black male, who talks about white supremacy racism in a manner that is palatable to many white people. That's why he's been allowed to write at the New York Times for so many years. I think the fact that he's engaged in anti-sexual behavior alone makes him more palatable to white people and the fact that Uh, He talks about his sexual abuse and his sexual abuser being a black person. All of that, I think, makes him way super appealing to white audiences and to someone like Alice Siebold. He can become very useful, still a victim of white supremacy. And I believe his story. I think he's a victim. And I mean, hey, you do have monsters and monstrosities, black people, non-white people, victims who do abuse sexually, even other victims. Lots of that all the way through. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. She says my rapist was poor, black and uneducated and came from a family with an entrenched criminal record. I think being Santa Rosa just talked about that, like the audacity. I felt so disgusted uh, with all that. Again, we have read now read the updated version, the afterward, all of this. No mention. Wasn't he a Marine? He didn't have a criminal record. I think they went and dug in his like juvenile record where I think he stole like $24 or something like retarded. Like what in the world? Your family, do they have a a record of entrenched criminal behavior? You and your years of drug pilfering, all the rest of it, lying on the witness stand. Let's see. And then a virgin, the fact that I was proof. Oh, and then again, you can't be proven to be a virgin. We talked about that last week. Like, what are you talking about? Proven to be a white virgin? How? What test do they have for that? If anybody knows the science on how you would be proven to be a virgin, what is the scientific test for white virginity? Let me know. 
Jesus. Then let's see. Mm-mm-mm. Anything else? I thought she had at least one more. Oh yeah, I'll never forgive my rapist. Of course, no forgiveness for the nigger. Uh, all right, I got all my notes in. I guess I'll get our note in from white person who wrote in. I definitely felt like he shouldn't get top billing <laughs> for a program that's not intended for white people. So the white person wrote in. Let's see. He says, "I just found your podcast and got caught up. I'd like to offer a few, <laughs> offer a white perspective and a few observations about things that have not been mentioned. Number one." Regarding the apology and how long it took, there was the silence, the long silence between the exoneration and Siebel's apology, an apology that read more like a defense of her actions. The I'm sorry for what happened to you and it's a shame what they did to you apology, she wrote. It has taken me the past eight days to comprehend how this could have happened. (laughs) But it was not eight days. She told the New York Times that she had learned a few weeks before Mr. Broadwater's exoneration that the district attorney was reevaluating the case. She had time to think about it. What a liar. Uh, How about starting with the identification? Like, ooh, I did get confused. Ooh. Perhaps we will find out about her thinking in the sequel reworking of Lucky. This is from the New York Times. To do justice to the new reality and all the ramifications of the past would be a huge undertaking. Miss Siebel said in her email, it might also be amazing. Are you serious? Two, about the trial and the benefits of a bench trial as opposed to a jury trial in upstate New York in the 1980s, the odds of getting an all-white jury were very high. Syracuse was 16% black and a black male accused of raping the pure, chaste, and virginist of virgins. Syracuse student Alice Siebel was going to get convicted. Little did his lawyer imagine the white judge would do the same. Syracuse University is a big deal in this part of the state, particularly with its emphasis on sports. Donovan McNabb and it's really all they had. There is Buffalo and the Bills and pretty much everything else is New York City, which they loathe. In other words, there was no way he was not getting convicted regardless of the facts. That is discussed in that Syracuse.com article today. They talked to uh, Mr. Broadwater's defense attorney and he explains like some, I guess it's almost 40 years at this point, his thinking. Uh, And I mean, it's super. He acknowledges everything that was just said, the dynamics of white supremacy, racism, why he didn't want a white an all white jury because he exactly what he just said. He knew he would get convicted. He thought they would be better going with this judge, that he would be fair and do right by them. And then he's hanging out with Alice Broadwater in chambers. So, you know, uh, was six in one hand, half dozen in the other. You know, what can you do? Uh, Number three, regarding the now canceled filming of Lucky, there were problems with the script. Producer Timothy Musianti mentioned before, uh, found including changing the race of the rapist from black to white, even though the book had been researched and vetted by the publisher. In fact, from first reading the book, Musianti found problems. Apparently, this true story didn't feel the need to stick with actual facts. There are a lot of red flags in her narrative. Two things that stuck out were Siebel's need to be the center of attention and her propensity throughout the narrative to lie. She states several times throughout her narrative how willing she is to simply make things up. Her birthday trip to New York City with her mother is one example. She says that she is glad it happened on vacation so she would have time to make up a story. Then there's her fake boyfriend episode in college when she requested an old schoolmate send her a picture so she could show it around and pretend to have a boyfriend. She will later state during her grand jury testimony that TV and lawyers talk about telling the truth, but she knew if you told the truth and nothing else, you lose. 
Seabold seems to have left out one little tidbit about that truth. When you are sworn in as a witness, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, yet she felt justified in lying. After all, she was a good girl translation virgin. We had a caller who asked about the number, the repetition of that phrase good girl she also spoke regarding her grand jury testimony of seeking bloodthirsty revenge and called it the best show of my life one other tidbit that is what we call perjury and she writes about it there can be no question of her intent number four regarding the lineup I have seen the picture and there are no two individuals who look identical they have that photo in the article that was published uh, from this week uh, so you can see I said the same thing none of them look alike in fact numbers one two and three are so much taller that one wonders why they were included I said that too regarding numbers four Broadwater and five there are clear differences they have different head shapes different hairlines different lips nose and eyes and do not resemble each other at all except for the fact that they are both black for some hey whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute Denzel can we get a little help here wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute Denzel we're looking for two Negroes in a white car any two will do there we go thank you Denzel uh, even without viewing the picture of the lineup the description of it is more than troubling it is infuriating Sebo picked the wrong man and and should have been the end of it oh no problem Baldrater just told his friend come in and glare at you evilly to distract you are we to believe that little Miss Kojak, I'm sorry, little Miss Virgin Kojak, veteran of so many police shows and movies, believe that any suspect is in control of a lineup? How can anyone, especially our virginal heroine, who considered herself a poet and artist who came from such an intellectual family that the Oxford Dictionary was a dinner companion, fall for that? That is beyond belief. The whole book, really. A.D. Gail Ubler. Ubler uh, seemed to state this issue perfectly. The fence was building a case on misidentification. A panicked white girl saw a black man on the street. He spoke with familiarity to her and in his mind she connected this to her rape. She was accusing the wrong man. The lineup led directly to this. Seabold says Sergeant Lorenz was trying to protect her in the aftermath of the lineup but that Ubler knew I needed the truth. I think it is more that Ubler told her what she wanted to hear. Alice Seabold said he had no fear. It had been nearly six months since we'd seen each other. Uh, since we'd seen each other last. Six months since I lay under him in a tunnel on top of a bed of broken glass. He was laughing because he had gotten away with it because he had raped before me and because he would rape again. My devastation was a pleasure for him. He was walking the streets scot-free. His crime walking the street and smiling and apparently speaking to a police officer that came out in some of the other books that he wasn't even talking to her five another issue is her constant rape jokes we said that too a cock and a cracker how about after maria flores had attempted suicide she had commented on my poem by jumping a reminded that it's all about me having known a small number of women who were assaulted molested or raped i can say that not a single one of them ever made light of their experience and none ever joked about it Seabold not only jokes about her own rape but that of her roomie and she joked about the girl who tried to commit suicide she sure had commented on my poem by jumping tacky one can't help but notice that no matter what 
misery others go through it all has to be about poor little Alice noted that today too number six I find it interesting that the cops did not believe her story when she first reported it is it possible that she lost her virginity on purpose felt bad about it and tried to stop and things turned violent it seems at least a possibility Seabold as we now know is an unreliable narrator uh, in the Syracuse.com report from this week, they also point that out. The original detective not believing that her story was factual, but they weren't able to find any additional details in terms of what that meant or what led him uh, to that conclusion. But lots of question marks. Next, uh, number seven, I've been pondering your question about the anagram. What can we make out of Gregory Madison? A sodomy nigger is one possibility I think folks had already pointed out <laughs> those words were in there uh, on the other hand I'm sure that little Alice knows how to spell that last word properly eight frankly I do not believe much of anything in the book I do not believe the whole you were lucky story that supposedly gave her the title of the book I have searched and could not find who the supposed victim was I did I couldn't find that either I could also not find anything about the roommate who was supposedly raped I know we haven't gotten that far in the book yet but I know she also floats the story that Mr. Broadwater is supposed to have hired someone from jail to go rape her oh please she's been watching too much television or just lying even if the roommate was raped at the exact moment that our brave heroine was feeling pains and they just both happened to note the exact time I would ask what happened to that pain it just disappeared nine the book is pure fantasy she states how she researched the book with the help of the police and the prosecution yet she makes no mention of the defense she makes no mention of the distinct facial markings above uh, markings of mr broadwater and how he did not match any of the sketches she provided or worked on she does not mention that after the da offered his final comments that the judge rendered his verdict before the man could return to his seat they talk about the speed of the verdict in the report today she writes of Mr. Broadwater's criminal past. I'm sorry. I mean, Gregory Madison's criminal past and how he came from a family of criminals. In another of her glaring plot holes, this vicious criminal, well known to the police, had no mugshot. Wait, he's a known criminal, yet he has no mugshot? How is this possible? 10. She writes about Officer Clapper being promoted because of his help on the big case. More TV claptrap. His only role in the case was being the cop on the street who was talking to Mr. Broadwater and he seems to have testified for the defense more than the prosecution supporting Mr. Broadwater's assertion that he, Clapper, was the one on the street to whom he was speaking and not Siebold. 11. More Contrivances the apartment where the roommate was supposedly raped was a crime scene and the police told Seabold to leave her male roommate a note not to touch anything. What the fuck? Sorry. Then she writes one and leaves it on a pillow using the speculum no less. Let me get this straight. You leave a note for your roommate to not touch anything and you leave it somewhere in the back of the apartment. Then you don't even mention not touching anything in the note. What was the point of the note other than to make the speculum joke? maybe it's all a lie 12 even more contrivances her roommate was raped supposedly and yet the cops on the scene are all about Alice <clears throat> forget about the victim you Alice you are the star you are all we care about Alice is the heroine here the celebrity victim they talked about that one to stop it Ooh, let me shake your hand wow uh, I realized that it is a 
memoir, but everything that happens to anyone is all about Alice. I haven't written about the many things that you have already covered. I would like to add, though, that although I may be white, I am on your side. I find this outrageous and can't understand why more people are not outraged by it. Negros are known to rape. I grew up in an integrated neighborhood and most of my friends were black and this could have been any one of them. But then again, that was not the point of her story. She wanted vengeance and a black man was going to play any black man. And Alice Siebold was not going to let the truth get in her way of vengeance. We're looking for two Negroes in a white car. Any two will do. Much obliged, Mr. Denzel Washington. Uh, did any other folks have commentary? Uh, I can't think he went through and like listened. I guess he had been writing. I posted the article and he was writing online or what have you. Wanted to share his thoughts. We got that in as well. Any any other folks? Dread 138, be in Santa Rosa. No, we did overtime late for some folks. Any other final comments they want to get in on Lucky before we call it a read? You can't be hurt. Yes, sir. Be in Santa Rosa. Yeah, I kind of find it uh, a little weird, but shocking at the same time when uh, she was talking about the uh, Bill Cosby um, accusers. She sounds just like one of them, making up stories, drugs, alcohol, heroin. Um, And I also got a Macaulay Culkin good son vibe from her, just like a, like a, just like, antagonizing people and, and messing with them. That's why her friend wanted to get away from her so much. I kind of got those feelings from her. Like I was just, just annoyed by her completely. And and I still don't believe a word that she said also. Um, it, it was horrible. Uh, that's all I got to share. Uh, home alone, my goodness. I can't believe it. Uh she does come across as a nah, not home alone. Good son. The when, good when son. He was terrorizing the kids. Well, he was he was good, a terrorist there a too. Son? He was a terrorist yeah. in uh, Home Alone too. Uh, pretty much, he was just kind of glorified for the holidays. But either way, good son, he, both of them. Uh, just a little terrorist white person, uh, just to go around and annoy and get on everybody's nerve. That's why he got left at the house <laughs> for the uh, Christmas when he got on everybody's flipping nerves. Uh, but yeah, I totally uh, agree. Abs- I said if I had been Lila, I would have been right there. Banished. Get thee behind. Like, get out of the bed. Get out of the room. Like, you're not kicking it. We're not hanging. No, we're not clones. Beat it. Again, the... What was it? Make sure I get the... The, uh, the adjusted title. Super Freak's Diary. A Night with Rick James. Uh, did Dread138, anybody else, anything they want to get in before we call it a book? We'll have a new one for next Thursday. Alice Siebold, it has been fascinating. Wow. Everybody good? Everybody good? Yeah, Grant. Just, um, just, just a note of agreement. Thank you. Didn't mean to cut you there. That was uh, Dread 138. He was giving his note of agreement. It is. Uh, I think this book might have snatched the championship title from Dr. Layla Africa's Nutricide just because I think he at least had correct intentions uh, with that book. I don't think she had correct intentions with this book at all. Like, this is just lock up some black males, have some black males killed, make some money off of it. Total practice of racism, the lying 
on top of that like man and it's not even well written to begin with uh like i think this might have snatched the title from dr layla africa as worst book ever which would actually bump uh isabel wilkerson's case down the third worst book ever since it would now be new one two and three but i think this is worthy of uh of the crown Alice Seabold for, for Anthony Broadwater and a whole lot of other black people having to endure this as a uh, championship reading for so many years. Anyway, two days of overtime in a row. We'll see if we can get off uh, in normal time for tomorrow's neutralizing workplace racism, 8 PM Eastern 5 PM Pacific. Uh, again, much obliged for all the folks who tuned in, wrote in, called in, uh, hope, you know, we got something from more, Black misandry, the man not raping black male, old Alice Seabold and Lucky. Have suggestions for a new book? Drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Man, sobriety would be best. Everything we heard today. Woo. No narcotics, no snorting anything or whatever else. Sobriety would be best in addition to being sober if you're out and about no verbal confrontations you should be thinking they could be armed with an armed entourage or at minimum a white woman who can rally all kinds of white violent killers come and beat you down all the rest and then probably get you convicted for a rape that you didn't even do all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.